0: I'm ready, buddy. So we are back on the Pizza Podcast. Today, I'm super excited because we got my girl from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, a true Brooklynite, Allison Fasano. She's an amazing chef. This is a little bit of a different thing from what we normally do. Um, But Allison does have a lot of roots in pizza, and that's how I know her from, you know, Reaching out about pizza, that's how we met originally. And, um, you know, I think her profession has so much to lend uh, to what we do when we're talking about ingredients, when we're talking about putting different flavor profiles together. And Allison's worked at everything from Michelin Star Restaurant, she's been on Chop before. Um, what's going on, Al? Good to Hi. have you on.
1: Hi, Nino. <laughs> Love to see you, buddy.
0: Good to see you. What are uh, what are some of these restaurants that you've worked at that are? legendary and
1: amazing. Well, since I was 14, I worked from pizzerias to Michelin star restaurants. I worked uh, as Bobby Flay sous chef for three years at his restaurant Gato in Manhattan. I've worked at Del Posto. I worked at the Sagamore resort for six seasons and then a couple of hidden gems here in uh, Williamsburg. You know, I worked for Carmine Gangone and his pizza place, Carmine's. I've also worked at the place that really started the restaurant scene, uh, Dumont and their sister restaurant at Dressler. And a couple other places here and there, you know, I think it's always important to uh, learn and grow from your experiences, you know. So even Humble Beginnings, working at um, Sete Pani Bakery right on Lama Street in Williamsburg, um, you know, making cannolis and scoring bread. I got hired to be a counter girl, but I think you know me. I'm not a counter girl. I'm like a behind the scenes. And also I, uh, you know, don't really always do what I'm told. I like to go off the beaten path. I think we have that in common, you know.
0: Facts, facts, facts. Yeah. I gotta give a big shout out to Carmine because uh Carmine's one of the original neighborhood guys. I mean, he's probably got one of the most successful pizzeria's in uh in in the neighborhood for sure, since he opened that sports bar. It's amazing. Um so uh you just said you got you started Set the Um counter girl in yeah. the neighborhood what, what they do you said they... yeah
1: I, you know what's really funny is i've known i want to cook since i was 11 years old after watching uh the food network i remember going that's what i wanted to do i want that to be me. like i always knew that food was my path And, uh, you know, when you're 14, you're able to get those working papers and work. I remember I got my working papers and I was like, let me apply to Sete Pani. And I remember the owner, Nino, was just like, why do you want to work here? You know, I don't think it's very often that a young girl, you know, at the age of 14 shows up to like a, you know, food, like business, like a bakery or something looking for a job. Because I don't think that's a common job for a young female, first job to work at a bakery. And I'll never forget, he said to me, why do you want to work here? And I didn't skip a beat. And I said, I love the smell of bread. Mm. And I've never forgotten this. You know, I'm 31 now. And I just never forgotten my answer when he asked me that. Uh, and actually, it's one of my favorite things. I, it's something very therapeutic. And I know you do this with pizza. And I don't know if it's the yeast or it's the flour or it's the care that goes into making it that it's so therapeutic. And for me, bread has it. Pizza has it. You know, making pasta has it as well. It's just like. Just like the care that goes into it, the history that goes into something, just the smell of it making, whether it's, you know, bread in the oven, you're watching the yeast and it's proofing or whatever it is. It's just so therapeutic and so homey for me. Just like you break open, you know, a baguette and you smell it. It's just like, I do love the smell of bread. I don't know for you, it's pizza.
0: Oh, Oh, no, I love the smell of bread too. I'm fucking obsessed with bread, especially lately. And especially since I've like figured out that there's this um you know the glycemic index thing and more about the science like I am completely obsessed. Uh couple episodes ago we did with Francesco or Francisco from Monitors Cuisine mm-hmm. who just wrote Monitor's bread and is now coming out with Monitors Pizza. So I mean that definitely brought me um you know to bigger levels in like not only Minecraft but since I started Uh, Williamsburg pizza I actually I mean back in the day I hit a ceiling where I was like wait why am I looking at pizza makers I gotta start looking at bread makers after like probably 10 years of making pizza and it was um that was you know Chad Roberts's tartine bread reading that book was the moment that like kind of changed my trajectory and my level in the industry I, I always attribute that to making um you know, winning some of the competitions I won and getting to the level that I did kind of ahead of the pack. Like, now everybody knows. Now, you know, back then there wasn't any pizza books out there, but... um, going back to so you grew up you know your family's italian obviously now
1: yeah so my dad was uh fully italian my mom's irish and russian oh okay you know that's why i have blonde hair and blue eyes there you, you go you know and then you have my sister she's all like she has dark hair and dark eyes and my father was very like you know he will go outside and he comes back in like really dark like napolitan style skin and i go outside and i burn to death you know <laughs> <laughs> but there's no doubt like my last name is uh actually a town in Puglia i have not gotten a chance to visit Visit yet, but it's definitely on my uh list. But also, I think like uh, I think you know, those people in Naples and actually in Puglia have blue eyes. True. So True. you know, a lot of times people here, well, Fisano, even in certain
0: places in Sicily, like yeah. you know, because they have Norman roots and they, there was a lot of Greek things, and you know. I mean, I always compare Sicily to Mexico and the fact that, like, you know, a people from New York, most of the guys from Mexico that immigrate to New York are from Puebla, which mm-hmm. is way down south, which has, you know, a certain look, this and that.
1: They look like me, basically. Not in Puebla.
0: <laughs> in, north, in North Mexico, yeah. there's parts that they look like you. Um, because, you know, uh, it's just like, I mean you got to look at the world, you know, people are, uh, they're from where they're from. There's conquerors, there's whatever. And, you know, uh, that's going to depend in Sicily, for instance, like you have towns that they were the bases 500 years ago yeah, for, for sure. the Norman invasions. Like that's how they conquered a place. So like in that town, like it kind of never changed. And it's the same thing in Mexico. Um,
1: and I also think the greatest way to see or like history, if you will, is go down to like a market, like one of those outdoor like mercatinos, like they have in Italy. Because like if you're in, let's say Calabria, uh, Naples, you know, if you're in Rome and you go to a market, but if you go to Sicily and go to one of their mercatinos outside, you see like the difference in food because we all know the history of Sicily, of how many people conquered Sicily, how many people were in and out of Sicily. A uh, very big thing in Sicily is they have um, mixed fruits and nuts. It's in it like a combination because, you know, they were taken over by, you know, Greece and even Africa as well. You see this influence and I think you could always see it through the food. You know, because things that you see at a Marcatino in uh, Sicily aren't the same things, uh, you know, about an hour away in Calabria.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, you see things like couscous and like yeah. fish dishes. You see, um, you know, uh, you know, there's so many things in Sicily that like kind of don't really exist as like modern things, um, in the rest of Italy, whether it's like right across the water in Calabria.
1: Yeah, and I think one of my favorite. Um, you know, like cannolis, for instance, we all know they originate in Sicily, but a lot of people don't realize there's like a Sicilian cannoli because the shell itself is a lot darker because it contains Marsala wine and cocoa powder. And actually, even the cream that's inside the cannoli, it's a lot it's lighter. It's more uh, citrus-forward, uh, you know. It's something a lot different than other regions of Italy, even here in America. You know, people love cannolis, and I came back from Italy, and I was just like, wait a minute. This is not like a cannoli I had in Sicily. So there's a, a big difference.
0: So so I'm interested because what you just said, you said citrus forward. Yes. So that would be like, you know, you're adding like, you know, maybe it's from the peel. You're adding these bitter notes, these acidic notes. Like, like how would a person like you who's so in-depth in the, you know, in the chef scene, how would you attribute that to flavor? Because I know like your background you're you're looking at these flavors probably in a much deeper way than a lot of pizzaiolos are looking at things so
1: yeah you know i remember like having a cannoli in sicily and i always love to try the food like a place is known for you know what i'm saying like if a place is known for this it's like we have to eat this here you know like to see where it comes from and the history and you know, like other people like go to New York and see Times Square where I'm like, what is this town known for? Let's eat that. Like I like to basically eat my way through a town, uh, if you will. So I remember going to Sicily and having these cannolis and like it wasn't nothing that I know of a cannoli. You know, I remember taking a bite of it and even the cream uh, – Inside, was a lot lighter. wasn't as heavy. You know, I always, like, think of food that sticks to the roof of your mouth. Like, you know when you eat peanut butter and it sticks to the roof of your mouth? Sure. I feel like a lot of times cannolis or even cheesecakes have this. Like, the thing where it sticks to the roof of your mouth. And I just remember it it being very, like, smooth taste, and it was creamy, and it was... This orange, uh, like almost like candied orange with inside like the ricotta filling that we all know. And it was like light notes of chocolate chips. And I remember going, I've never had a cannoli like this in New York. And you just see the shells a lot darker. The Marsala wine, which is a fortified Sicilian wine. And I'm like, of course, that would be in the shell. Like, who? why would I know that? And you go here, you learn about the cannoli, you taste it, you see it, you learn this history. And I think this changes the way you think about food or what you know. And even like growing up and living in New York, how many things, and I'm sure you know this, like even what like pizza is, how things almost get changed. Like, it's not only for good or bad, it's just like, sometimes we lose the history yeah sometimes i think we lose the history of something like what everybody here thinks if they know of cannoli and you go to sicily it's just like blows your mind
0: right i mean when you're when you're creating a dish like when you're looking at things are you looking at like okay fat salt bitter sweet salty like all those different flavors i feel like I mean, my chef friends are always chasing that. And it seems like what you're describing is, um, you know, maybe those bitter notes and those uh, sweet notes and those um, acidic notes are, like, missing from, like, just sugar and regatta, which is what most cannoli cream is made from. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like that's really what's making it special in Sicily. Um, you went to school and in italy to yeah to learn how to cook when you were how old were you
1: i think it'd be about like 18 or maybe I was like 19 or 20 because i originally started at johnson wales in rhode island then i was just like i just want to do italian cuisine so why not go uh to a place where it started from so i went to school actually in calabria which is the southernmost part of italy and what school was that it was the italian culinary institute and uh we studied regional italian cuisine so you know there's 20 regions of italy and each region has its own story to tell and all dishes that it's known for and it's about learning especially in italy where you know kind of food and history go hand in hand whether you're learning about how olive oil is made or you know you're learning about you know cannolis from sicily or we're learning about ribollita, you know which is a uh, you know soup which comes from tuscany or you know it's about learning to cuisine and what grows wild and how these, these people cook from you know the land and uh, each region you'll learn about it whether you're in the north and there's like heavy ragus or you're in the south and you know you have like cuttlefish and citrus is growing wild and so it's basically like seeing what comes from every region and what grows wild and what they're known for it's just like really exciting to see the history and how things are made And kind of like learn from almost like these nonas, if you will, and these chef instructors and like a gelato master. And it was just, you know, to like learn and be in a place where it comes from. I don't think anything really gets better than that. And getting a better understanding and a grip on really what the Italian cuisine is, you know, especially like being in New York, we... You know, it changes your perspective because how many people think chicken parmesan the Italian or baked ziti and all these parm dishes and penne alla vodka, and then you're like, none of that is actually Italian. It's yeah, Italian I mean, American. Oh,
0: let me. Uh, so, it it's Italian, but it's it's from the diaspora, right? Yeah. You had the first and the second diaspora, so you know you get on like these. These people, they're coming over to America. They're coming to Argentina. They're coming to everywhere they're coming from. But in America, they're coming over and it's like, oh, wow, we've never had meat before. Yeah. So we're going to use meat. You know what I mean? We have our cheeses and we have all these things. Um, You know, and my personal take on it is that, like, yeah, it evolved off of that because you're talking about a time like, 1880 to 1920 you got the first Italian diaspora and you know these guys are coming over and they're coming over because they're in object poverty there's no you know, they're basically starving to death. They're malnourished. Like, how many people you know, even from the second uh diaspora, like, how many people you know, like, growing up, like, I know I know a ton, where their grandparents, you know, they're five feet tall, and their yeah. their children and their grandkids are, like, monsters, and yeah. they're six foot three. And it's literally because of um, malnutrition yeah. that they were exposed to as kids. So, I think, like, I mean... Italians came over here and they were just like oh you know we have chicken and we have steak and we have all these things we just had uh Lou uh Cresci from mm-hmm. Cresci's in Williamsburg. of Williamsburg
1: remember Cresci's of course who doesn't remember Cresci's I yeah. mean don't ask any questions you didn't see anything you don't know anybody that's so it <laughs> was about going to fuck Cresci's you know that, that was all that's like Old school Williamsburg nose creches, you yeah. Know? Like, but he
0: would say, like, everybody wanted to eat steak, yeah. But like, we had pasta, we had all these things, but all these guys wanted to eat steak. And I think it's like this insane window into the mentality of the people that came over here that's, um, kind of misunderstood and kind of misrepresented today. Where it's just like, we're like, okay, spaghetti and meatballs is an authentic Italian. I just saw an episode of pasta grannies where there was a woman somewhere making spaghetti meatballs. And even if it wasn't and it created here by Italian immigrants back in the day, is it that a win? I mean, I almost feel like it's a window into the past. Um, You know, kind of how it was, but you grew up like Italian American, like, what was it like uh, growing up in Williamsburg when like you were a kid? Like you, uh, did you go to the Chilio feast? Um, of course. Did you have like all these places around? Like, can you like, I'm not from Williamsburg originally. Like I kind of like uh, got adopted by Williamsburg yeah. in an older we age. We
1: accepted you with open arms. Like yeah, you fit in. Even so though I'm like, a
0: Sicilian.
1: Yeah, you, you <laughs> fit in. Don't worry. Well, you uh, know, uh, you fit in. Like we open, like with open arms, we accepted you because I feel like you could fit in Williamsburg. Like there's not a doubt. I'd be like, this guy's a Brooklyn guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. You know,
1: you know, no one's asking any questions about you. You know.
0: I mean they were asking questions. They were like, "Oh, yeah, to Do You went to like oh, juniors I, oh. or
1: something? Is that? Huh? Like, do you went to like juniors or something? So, I
0: I think I well,
1: I Or was per- it you asking the questions?
0: Well, I was definitely asking <laughs> questions. Yeah. Um I uh Yo. Um so Yeah, when I moved to Williamsburg, I opened Williamsburg Pizza. I never thought it'd be a Williamsburg in my life. Like, even though I grew up, like, because I grew up half between New Jersey when I was younger and, like, Brooklyn when I was a little bit older. um, I never, I didn't know Williamsburg was an Italian neighborhood. Like, nobody in my neighborhood really knew that because we didn't leave our neighborhoods back then.
1: Yeah, and I think and- that's I think that's pretty accurate. I think, uh, you know, I grew up on Ainsley between Union and Lomer Street. And uh, you know, I lived there my whole life. Both of my parents grew up on uh Devoo Street, right across st- street from each other. And um, you know, my grandma, my grandfather grew up in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, and it's really like back in the day no one left williamsburg like you didn't really go to the south side you didn't go to bedford avenue my father used to say you know if you go to bedford avenue they'll, they'll uh, start throwing bottles at you right you know and uh when i got like my driver's license my, my permit my father taught me how to drive on bedford avenue because there was no cars on it so that basically paints a pin- picture in your head you know I remember we would go driving on bedford avenue and you'll see like tumbleweeds i think there was like a polish restaurant and that was about it. But when well, you
0: went up north on Bedford Avenue though. Yeah. Not on the south side, like
1: No, definitely not on the south side. <laughs> definitely on the north side. Um, but you know, growing up in Williamsburg, we had like neighborhood spots. Like uh Cree-She's was definitely one of them, you know, like
0: Juniors. Juniors. Fortunados. Yeah,
1: you know, um, you had um, What's it called?
0: Bermonti's.
1: Bermonti's, you know, has been there for 100 years. Like I like love the, them so much. Lisa Bermonti's.
0: Lisa yes. her sisters there. You
1: know, old school. And, uh, you know, growing up in Williamsburg, we had, like, stapled restaurants. We had, it was pizzerias, pitalugas, you know, like, that's yep. what the staple was. Like, we didn't have other things. It wasn't a food scene. It wasn't, like, a destination to go to Williamsburg. Growing up, my mom used to say, if anyone says we're... Where are you from? Just say Brooklyn. Don't say Williamsburg. So, you know, there was that weird thing about Williamsburg. And then... You know
0: Giuseppe from Ornella, Vitrelli? His, uh, I'm not sure if you know him or not. He He's from the neighborhood and everything, but he has a restaurant. And he was on the podcast as well, and he was saying the same exact thing. Yeah. He was like, you know... You didn't tell people you were from Williamsburg. Yes, nobody's was, ever heard of it. Right. And it was like, yeah, it was almost like an embarrassing thing. Like, it's yeah. like.
1: It was like, uh, you know, my mommy say, if anybody says, where are you from? Don't say Williamsburg, just say Brooklyn. And we had, it was very like big, small town, Williamsburg, which a lot of people don't understand. Like, no one left the neighborhood. Like, people got older. They lived in the same house as their parents. You know, the my grandparents lived upstairs from us. You know, you worked in your neighborhood, you live, you know, like we didn't really go like everybody knew everybody like, you know, my grandma worked at small world daycare center two blocks away from our house. She worked there for like 30, 35 years. And everyone used to say, oh, your grandma's Miss Gale." And I be like, yeah, meanwhile, these kids are like 35 years old. They're like, oh, Miss scale. Like, you know, like that's how it was. You know, and like I went to PS 132 in the neighborhood and like my like my fourth grade teacher went to school with my uncle and like everybody spoke like me. So we all have these accents, which you said. But it's also like our teachers also spoke like us, too. So we didn't know any difference until we like went on vacation or something to like Florida and people were like, "What the hell are you guys from? You know, but Williamsburg was like really big, small town. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody's business. You know, we were in school with, you know, our classmates for years. And then I would say around 1990, 1999 to like 2000, 2001 is kind of started how, change. you know, Williamsburg started to become what it is today. And something I always remember, and I think you do too, is a restaurant opened up on Union Avenue called Dumont. Do you yeah. remember?
0: I don't remember when it opened up because I wasn't there. I was in the city then. But, I mean, I can only imagine. I know what Williamsburg was. I know that I got a job at uh, Bacci Abracci yeah. when I was, want to say, like, 21 yeah. years old. And when I looked it up on the Americanology for that job, I was like, Wait, where are you? And it was this guy from Naples. I think they were, they used to work at like 11 Madison. They were like uh, FOH, like some place, some fancy yeah. place. The guys that opened it from Naples, definitely from Italy. I don't know if from Naples, but I was like, wait, where are you? And they're like, Williamsburg. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah. uh, and they're like, yeah, no, it's good. Like, come down. And I came with a loaded gun. <laughs> because i was i was like we had a bad, bad back, right. back
1: in the day you know williamsburg. yeah
0: and now i know williamsburg a lot more intimately in the history and this and that and like that probably wasn't necessary but from what i was told growing up and like you know where i grew up at gravesend like in my later teen years um you know, you didn't go to Williamsburg. Like yeah, you get robbed, you get shot, yada yada yeah, yada. We had a
1: bad and they the
0: were, day. you know, you know where Bacio Rachi is. Yes, they like, do. So then, when I got off the train, I had no idea the changes that had been made. I was like, like my heart stopped. Yeah. And I was just like, "Holy shit! I'm about to go to jail for five years for having a loaded weapon on me." <laughs> and you know, it was. Uh, You know, I mean, and then I didn't even get to know, you know, even during that time, I didn't even get to know the, you know, the Williamsburg that is really Italian until very, um, you know, a few years later in my life. Like, it wasn't until after I opened Williamsburg Pizza that I actually got all that. I, you know, I haven't thought about what I just said in years and years and years. I almost like forgot about that yeah. you know what I mean but
1: that was but I, I actually think restaurants could change a neighborhood because I think like when I think back to Dumont I think when Dumont opened I think maybe it opened in 1999 maybe 2000 you have to remember our at this time I'm probably about 9 10 maybe I'm 11 years old and I remember we had a place uh what was the name of it right now we had like a couple of local places. And, what know. was
0: that? That Aurora place over by the Bedford? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: But I just remember, the because I lived around the corner from Dumont, and I've never in my life seen people wait an hour for brunch. Like, that was unheard of. Like, you go right. see the call line, You just go sit, have a table. Maybe there's a few minute wait here or there. But there was nobody waiting, especially like seeing people like you knew they weren't from the neighborhood You know, like waiting an hour and, you know, Dumont was busy like all the time and I, you know, went to go eat there and I remember this is not food that we're used to having, you know, this isn't a pizzeria, you know, it was like very like upscale, almost like bistro like, you could see some French influences, Italian, they were making everything from scratch and, you know, this even when I was like young going there to eat, you know, I wouldn't say I have an advanced palate at that age, but I just remember going, this food's delicious. This is the best food I've ever had. And I think other people saw what easy commute it was to go to Manhattan because literally two stops are in Manhattan, you know, from right. Williamsburg. And I think people started seeing that and they saw. I think your reputation of Brooklyn kind of goes away when you walk the streets of Williamsburg. Like if you're on DeVo or you're on Ainsley or you're walking on Llama Street and you see. And you could feel this neighborhood vibe. You know, it's very neighborhood. It's very like families all live in a house. It's not like you have eight tenants. It's like, no, like that floor, you know, it's like our grandparents lived upstairs. And that was like the homes in Williamsburg. You know, your grandparents lived upstairs from you or your grandparents owned your house. And, you know, that's how we grew up. And you feel like this neighborhood vibe. You see these houses and you walk down these streets and... It's something that could be seen, heard, felt. It's a lot of, like, emotions. And you see this when you walk in Williamsburg. Because we all think, like, uh, Brooklyn. Like, we go to Williamsburg and walk the streets. It kind of changes your vibe. Like, what people think. I
0: mean, is a fucking big block that changes your mind with all the Italian flags. Even to this day.
1: Absolutely. And I think, like, you know, growing up, we had a pool in my backyard. And I remember people going, oh, my God, you have a pool? Yeah, no one...
0: I, the guys that have pools today, you bring new people to that. They don't even, they can't even wrap their heads I around it. It's like, like well, their brains explode.
1: Yeah, like people were surprised that we had a yard and, you know, I have a pool. And they're like, you have this? And I'm like, yeah. It's like, where do you think we live? And I think this vision, whether it's from TV shows or movies, you know, then you go to, like, especially other, it's not even just Williamsburg and other areas of Brooklyn because it's so, like, has this old and history story to it. It's like it changes. Like go there. See it. Experience it. Like Well, you have to it
0: experience out. it for the people that've been there for generations. I think I mean one of the major things is is now that people live there, you know, imagine a kid moving in today. Um, they're gonna have to live with five people and they're still gonna be paying eight hundred to twelve hundred a yeah. month in rent and they're not gonna have a pool and this and that. It's hard for them to wrap their head around because they're from you know, they're not like like that's not there for them to look at yeah you know, what you know I mean? it's, a lot of it's so gone, like yeah. i understand that but when they see that they're like wait a minute there's pools in brooklyn like i've lived yeah. in brooklyn for like the other five day years. i think you
1: called me you were by union pool which is a bar now but years ago it was actually a pool supply company and we used to walk around the corner and like my father would go buy like, your clothing. chlorine yeah yeah you know, so a lot of people are like, oh, that's a weird name for a bar. I'm like, literally, it used to be a pool supply store. <laughs> like,
0: literally. Well, most people don't even think... Most people, like, that go to Union Pool think it was a pool. Uh, yeah. Like, a community pool. It's yeah. like, none of these people had pools. So... They would go there to go to the pool, that and then a, the reality was it so many people had pools at that point in history right. that it was a pool supply.
1: It was a pool supply store, and I think, uh, you know, now if somebody moved to Williamsburg and see, like, great restaurants, and there's a lot of Michelin star restaurants, and there's a lot of beautiful big condos, and a lot of these old houses were knocked down. So has it lost the field? Yes, but I don't think it ever will. You know, I think the history still lives on. I think with anything, like, things change. But also, you could still see the old. Like, the old and the history, it's always there. You know, talk to neighborhood people. I'll take you on a tour if you want. You know, like... Uh, oh,
0: oh, listen, Allison, I'll take you on a fucking tour. All right, all right. we'll I've both have in. different
1: tours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You know, like... Uh, I remember there was a movie years ago. Do you remember Donnie Brasco? Do you yeah, you yeah, of course, of course. You know, my mom watches that movie. My mom's like, oh, I know Sonny Black's son. Like, my mom will watch the movie. She knows everybody. But yeah, I know
0: him too. Yeah, yeah you know what I'm
1: saying? Hot. That's You're right, he does. Yeah. You know, but it's just so funny. He used to deliver
0: pizza for me when he got out for like a uh, couple. Well, now, see, it wasn't a couple years. It was like a couple weeks. But, uh, yeah, you know, you Mary is a Sunny. good guy. He takes care of him.
1: Yeah, you'll see, you know, talk to Sonny. But also, uh, what a lot of people don't know is over on Metropolitan, that club they used to hang out with, is a restaurant now. And then you have neighborhood people going, they used to chop up bodies in the basement. Motion you know, City Lounge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, But also you have people like us, like know what happened there. Like, we're not going to go eat that. I'm not going to
0: go eat there. There's fucking fucking... demons in that food.
1: Yeah, that's right. But it's just like, you know, that's a Williamsburg history. I remember sitting at a restaurant in Williamsburg a couple of years ago when this guy would like, I don't know if he was from the Midwest or the South or somewhere other than Brooklyn. He was given a tour. Have you seen these people giving a tour of Williamsburg?
0: I have not.
1: <laughs> but I know I had it. And I remember I feel like
0: feel like if I did I would run up to them and be like what are you doing? Over I here? know. I
1: was like mid eating, like mid food, like getting the fork to my mouth, and I just remember like I turned around and I was just like if anyone's given a tour, I hope it's me. Like I if I'm getting led right. Through a tour with a guy from a Southern accent. Somebody from, from Texas. the neighborhood
0: better be getting a kickback. Was it like a mob
1: tour? Or what no, was it? it wasn't. The guy is like, you know, he I, I can't really do a Southern accent, but the guy's like, these are great buildings over here. And I'm just like, no. Yeah, no, he can't give a tour of Williamsburg, like, the history. Like, what did he, you know, go on Wikipedia and look up the history of Williamsburg? No yeah, way, yeah. man. <laughs> no way, man. I mean, like, you need, like, neighborhood people, like a velour suit. I mean,
0: I mean your mother, like, somebody. I somebody don't care else, who the fuck my mother, is,
1: anybody. Like, somebody. Smoking a cigarette be, uh, on the corner yeah. with an espresso.
0: Yeah, and if, and if some southern guy's gonna give this thing, it should was be, real. Like,
1: you know, I was at uh, I was actually waiting to eat at you know Saint Enslim, okay. Metropolitan. I was yeah. waiting to eat there, and the guy had a little flag, and he was talking about the neighborhood. And I remember, like, I was just like, "Oh no!" And I seen it multiple times before. Like, I was eating at the Commodore, and I was just like, "What? Who's giving these tours? Who set this up? Who's making money from it?" Like, I I need to speak to somebody. Well, you could get, on get behalf. like
0: um, I know we got to ask Scott Weiner about this, but you could get a. Um uh like a certification to do tours in new york city
1: oh yeah
0: wherever you want i know it's messed up but
1: yeah like i need something legit like right now if i'm i need like a legit tour guy like i need to know he's official that's what we need the person gave me a tour in williamsburg if he doesn't have a lawsuit with like dark sunglasses if he doesn't have a driver somebody holding his umbrella he better be smoking a cigar or something (laughs) you know like taking out a law
0: that's you know,
1: it. A, a little something like even if he has like slick back hair, his name is Mario or something along those lines. Like, tell me something. Be like, oh, is your mother Debbie? Yeah, I went to school with her. Like, oh, this is official. Yeah. You know, and like then, something then, along those lines. Then,
0: oh, we went to Bermonti's. We, we went, went to, to Bermonti's. Oh, I'll yes. tell you about when Fortunato's open. And, yes, exactly. You know, I need something.
1: Like if I say to him, like, where are you from? And he's like, Montana. I'm like, oh, forget it. Yeah, give them refund automatic.
0: Listen, I hundred percent agree. There should be, uh, there should be a neighborhood society. Monsignor Jamie should set this up where Somebody, it's like yeah. you got to get certified, and we'll give you the numbers. Yeah, there's like a test. And you'll kick back.
1: Yeah, there's, there's like a, a test. test. You've got to pass. Yeah, you know what I mean.
0: Um, and they get kicked in. No, you're hundred percent right. Um, all right, we're going to be like,
1: where did, uh, where did you do your communion from or something like San Francis, Montcalm? <laughs> you know, what high school you went to. Did you go to PS two? Like it needs to have like some sort of what was your, what first was job? your high
0: school in Williamsburg?
1: Well, actually, um, I went to Grove of Cleveland in Ridgewood.
0: Oh, you came all the way up to where we are now.
1: Yeah, but it was just a few stops on a bus. But it's also like a lot of other kids went there, you know.
0: See, it's funny you say that because I got friends from Marine Park that went over by me in Gravesend, and I got friends from Graves Gravesend that went to over by me in Marine Park, and I was like, I always wondered about that. Like, I was like, yeah, hey, how the fuck do you get trucked? Like,
1: yeah, we get chipped you know, out.
0: I mean, it's literally like a fucking forty minute drive, and there's fucking three schools like within you a couple pass, miles of you, like yeah, you within less than a mile leave. of you.
1: You know, Uh, it was an easy commute. It's
0: all right. Yeah. James Madison, Lafayette, you know what I mean? Like this guy's like, uh, it's weird. All right. We got to take a real quick break for our sponsors and we'll be right back. All right. So we're back. You know what? You know, what's something that I think that most people don't understand. Um, That I understand, but it's like a hard thing for everybody. And, you know, I grew up in an old school Italian family, um, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I wasn't really into it until I was older. You know what I mean? Like, I I remember coming to Williamsburg and, like, I couldn't tell you what Santa Rosalie even really stands for except for it was like the party that we had in our community. But when I when I came to Williamsburg and I got invited to cook at uh, the Julio feast and I saw what was going on and I just dived into that history because it was just a different time in, in my life. Like when, when I was 14 years old, I was like, you know, everything was normal to me. Um, you know what I'm saying? Now I have like a better aspect where everything's like a little bit you know, more special and I want to do those traditions, then I got to imagine it was somewhat of the same for you or like, I mean, did you go to the Jillio feast when you were a kid? Well,
1: of course we went every year and I think, you know, it goes on for like a, over a week or so. And 11 you, days. Yeah. 11 days to be exact. Um, but of course we went several days, you know, as a kid, uh, you know, you go get some Zeppelis and you go get a sausage and pepper sandwich and you, you know, met up with the kids in your neighborhood. it like everybody knew everybody then. And it's also like a time where it's kind of like, you know, you'll run into somebody, even if they left the neighborhood, maybe they live in a different state, maybe they live in Long Island, you know, maybe they live in Florida. It's kind of like that one, um, time of year where, it's like an invitation for people to come back to the neighborhood because you know, you're going to know everybody. Like, even like, you know, I would go to the feast with like my mother or my grandmother and they'll, you know, run into somebody like their friend that they knew, you know, growing up who were like, Oh, I came back in for this. Like it's like that one thing that everyone comes into the neighborhood back for, you know, like seeing your old friends, like it's kind of like, the ultimate reunion like right especially as somebody who grew up there you know i walked there from my house was only a couple of blocks away you know i met up with my friends we would hang out you know you play a couple of games or whatever you you know you're doing and uh it's like we'll see people that left the neighborhood years ago it's like yeah it could be they've
0: big out for 10 years they could yes. have went to new jersey or long island and then they're back
1: yeah and then you know you'll see all your old friends there and it's kind of like uh You know, that's our thing. Like, you know, that's like the meeting, you know, the meeting place, if you will. And it's kind of like what they say. It's your neighborhood. You always go back,
0: right? No, 100%. I just, like, last week there's some, I think it's a Ken Burns produced or he's got something to do with it, but there's this PBS series called The Italian Americans and there was a... um, a story in there from this town in, you know, the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. That was an old school Italian town. And they have like, I think it's called like the big time or whatever the fuck they call it. But it's like the same thing. The difference is, um, you know, everybody knows uh, San Gennaro, you know, like guys come from all over from San Gennaro, around the country and this and that. And that's a big Italian feast. But when I saw the Giglio feast for the first time, I was like, and that's why i dove so much into the history um because i was older i was i think 28 the first time i saw it in my life and i was like how the fuck didn't i know this like let me explain this to you all you guys real quick the julio feast is um it's a feast of san polino and where it comes from it comes from the town of nola and it's been going on, I believe, since like 1483 in Nola's, where it traces its roots back to, which is, I mean, over 1500 years. It's easily, it's the oldest feast, not only in American history, like Italian-American history, but... Probably in Italian history, I don't know that for a fact, but fourteen like eighty three, whatever. Like this is a time when like priests could still get married. Um, where it comes from, gilio means like it's it's the flowers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the story goes, there's a, like a lot of legends, and you guys could look this up on Wikipedia, but it's uh, there was. Uh, a town called Nola and the bishop of the town was Sempolino. Um and what he did was a bunch of raiders came in and they stole all the children and a bunch of other people and took them into slaves and the story that they tell is that uh, the Turk who was probably like a Sand Turk or whatever he was back then because the Ottoman Empire and like Islam didn't exist in 1483 uh, heard the bishop story the bishop who got taken prisoner was like listen if you let the children go i'll offer myself as a slave and when that story they said like f you to the guy and when that story got back to this um turk like a guy who lived in turkey back then which back then i think was the byzantine empire but it might be talking about a different thing like we're still doing research on this but he came and rescued all the children and, and the bishop. And when they came back on the boat to Nola, they were all holding up these flowers. And the Jilio, which today, and Nola and in Williamsburg, which has been going on for like 120 years plus, um, the big thing, the Jillio the that they they lift up is a representation of those flowers and every year that they did the feast they made it bigger and bigger to make it more important year after year and you know the the guys that lift this thing the lifters literally get physical deformities from doing it they have these big bumps on their shoulder um and it's it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in, in NOLA. Like if you go to NOLA, like next year when they do this thing, um, there's like 10 of them that they do. And they're walking through these little streets and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, I, I still cannot understand. I mean, I think it's a marketing thing. I think we should market it more because it's, it's such a beautiful thing. And like these guys, uh, they're so committed and blah, 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 blah. And it's, it, it, it really, you know, people don't think it's Williamsburg, is this Italian neighborhood, right?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it's, you know, you have all these different areas of Williamsburg, right? You know, like uh, when a lot of people think of Williamsburg, you know, there's a lot of Hasidic, you know, like the Jewish community.
0: And the South Side. Yes. And you have Puerto Ricans yes. and Dominicans, like, you know.
1: Yes, and then like if you walk through like, you know, Ainsley, Lomer or Graham Avenue, you know, we used to say like Graham Avenue, like you could tell somebody's from the neighborhood when they say I was on the avenue, like it's Graham Avenue. It's
0: Graham Avenue,
1: right. Yeah, Graham. So like my grandma would go like walk from our house to the avenue, which is like four to five blocks, right? Four hours later, my grandma would show up home and like she went to like Sea town you know what I'm saying? And i'm like what took you so long well i saw so and so and she was telling me about her daughter and this that the other thing and guess who else i saw and this that the other thing it's like a project and a half you know for how to walk to the avenue because she saw everybody and their mothers that she knows you know because that's what it was about you know everybody knows everybody you know you're stopping you're bullshitting talking to people or another williamsburg thing i think it's a brooklyn thing like I'll say, "Hey, how you doing?" And you'll you'll respond with, "Hey, how you doing?" Like no one actually answers the question.
0: Right, right, right. You know what I'm
1: saying? I'll be like, "Hey, Nino, how's it, how you doing?" And you'll be like, "Hey, how you doing?" Hey, how like, you doing? Like, but no one answers. But like doing the actual, good. How are you? No one answers the question. That's like a thing. So now, like, doing
0: good. How are you? <laughs> yeah,
1: nobody says that. Like, I'd be like, "Hey, how you doing?" And the other person will say, "Hey, how you doing?" Like, there's no. I'm doing good. How are yeah, you? Yeah, when you pass it by thing, on the street, hundred percent. Absolutely not. You know, but that's how it is. Or we'll say words like bullshitting. Like, that means I was just talking to somebody. Yeah. My mom was like, oh, I saw so-and-so. We started bullshitting. Like, nobody else says that, though. I I never
0: even thought of that. Yeah, you're right. Nobody really says says that. that.
1: My mom was like, oh, I saw (sighs) so-and-so, and then we started bullshitting. Like, who says that? Like, you think about it now, like,
0: i think about it as you're fucking telling me and you know yeah what were you doing Oh was bullshitting yeah what, 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 like it
1: sounds so bizarre what, you're like you're like
0: you in bed you like fucking jerking off like yeah. what the fuck are you doing like or, you know
1: what another like thing that's like old school people do it my grandma used to get like folding chairs and she'll sit outside on the stoop
0: oh yeah we did that in my people old neighborhood watching. yeah i think
1: that's like people watching but you'll see people that you know
0: it's like that deep modded song, standing on the corner, watching yes. all the girls go by. Yeah. No, I mean that. My that... grandfather
1: used to sit in front of the house for hours. Like we had like a stoop going down, and you know, he used to prop his like folding chair on the top of the stoop and just like sit there for hours.
0: So I actually years ago went to San Francisco and a few other places when I was traveling around and brought that to communities where I would go to the hardware store pick up a bunch of folding chairs, pick up like a Bluetooth speaker. Cause you know, back in the day it was like a different apparatus. It was yeah. like a boom box like that. Yeah. But, and then I would be like, yo, we're, we're the lawn chair mafia over here. I'm going to teach you how to do this. And this is, you know, when you're hanging out, instead of just going to the bar, you and your friends, you guys get lawn chairs, you you hook up the Bluetooth thing, you play yeah. some good music and you sit outside and, and you're, you're bullshit, you're bullshit. Yeah. exactly
1: you know and yeah that's a great way to meet people and it's like you don't really see that in many neighborhoods but like it's like even now you walk to the streets of williamsburg people still do it like the you know the older community does it i think it gives them a reason to go outside their house you'll see their friends pass whatever sometimes people go you know they'll live across the street or down the block and they'll grab their folding chairs and they'll sit in front of your house hmm you know, I'd be like, Grandma, where did you go? She was like, Oh, I was sitting in front of So So's house. You know, yeah, like,
0: yeah, he's just talking. He's just talking. Every once in a while,
1: somebody you know bring down coffee or you know you have like uh, you know something from the bakery or somebody's got donuts or cake and it's a good day. You know, in the neighborhood.
0: So you said your mother's from uh, what? What did you say? Rush.
1: My. Well, actually, my mom's Irish and Russian. Her maiden last name is Duffy, so very Irish.
0: Did she cook, like, Italian cuisine, though, or not? So,
1: I hope my mother doesn't watch this. (laughs) (laughs) So, my mother actually cooked nothing. Okay. Real story. She'll tell you she did, but she really didn't. So, growing up, she didn't really cook anything. And we lived in the traditional home, like I spoke about. Like, my grandparents, which were her parents, lived upstairs from us. Like, my father's parents passed away before i was born so they used to do a lot of cooking my mom cooked nothing my dad used to cook a lot he used to cook a lot of italian but before i was born my father was actually a baker he worked for well retired from the mta but growing up we used to like bake a lot whether it's cookies cakes you know whatever we used to just like bake pastry a lot. baker yeah, oh, so you my, father was, tote? Yeah, my father was a baker and growing up we used to like bake and cook stuff and we used to cook a lot on the grill and, you know, he had this a lot of uh, traditional Italian cuisine like his, you know, parents and grandparents, you know, brought down to him. So it was definitely like, you know, I get a, like a taste of different cultures, you know, so my mother's mother was Russian Jewish. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I think it's really important to see different, styles of cooking and cuisines, you know, especially like even the Jewish cuisine, which a lot of people think of. It's they not kind of tr-
0: write it off.
1: Yeah, it's not. not as ex- bland
0: as, you know, whatever, But if you whatever. get to the
1: history of like Jewish cuisine and there, I think there are a lot of, you know, well-known chefs out there that really, you know, paint a picture and put it on Main Street, especially now. Uh, you know, so, you know, people think of Jewish cuisine as cavilte fish and matzahs, but there's actually so much more to that. Hmm. So I think it's important to see the history and the culture and the food. And, you know, like my grandfather was Irish, you know, you think of corned beef and cabbage, this, that, the other thing. And you hear, you know, especially food and history go hand in hand and you could taste in who, you know, took over a town and, you know, but I definitely really always felt more towards the Italian side.
0: Did you like? Did you ever get to go over to like your neighbors' houses and like? I gotta. My neighbors were
1: Italian. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Both so, ends. like,
0: were, like I mean, when you were a kid, were you, like, I mean, you were going over there, since of they were left, like, east, west, north, and south, that you had to be, like, surrounded.
1: Yeah, and you know? then I remember the, uh, you know, the Nona next door, she used to, like, uh, garden, and every year, you know, she'll make her own tomato sauce, and it's, like, one of those things where you could smell. Like, I think in Williamsburg now, you could smell you know the cooking from the streets you know and that was williamsburg and i remember just sitting in my backyard and you could smell the basil and you could smell the tomatoes and you could smell the garlic and uh you know you, you her grandkids were my age She used to hang out all the time and you know they were italian and we would go over there whether you're having lunch or dinner or snack and you know you see you know like their grandma was like off the boat i think actually she was still on the boat but right, you right, know, right. know what i'm saying yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think till this day i don't think The grandma speaks English till this day. Yeah, a lot
0: of a lot of a lot of the families that I meet from Williamsburg, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are from the second diaspora, which was after World War Two and like mainly in the 1950s and 60s, which we had in, you know, in Gravesend and Bensonhurst as well. Like there's still like a. You know, I don't think as much as Williamsburg. I always tell people, I'm like, Williamsburg is the strongest Italian-American community in New York City, in my opinion, today. And, you know, that opinion is based on um, me growing up, where when I talked to older guys, it was like kind of Williamsburg was like this afterthought. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, "Yeah, there's some guys over here, but you got Bensoners, Diker. You got all these neighborhoods right next to each other, like— That are all full and they're all empty now.
1: But I also think with anything, you have to go somewhere and experience it. Right. You know, like with Williamsburg, I grew up there. I was born and raised. I went to school there. And then I experience firsthand the change you know like another restaurant i think old school people remember besides sheet's was a place called milo's mm. now milo's was on Lomer street which now i actually can't even tell you what the name of the bar it's a bar now okay uh it's kind of like diagonal from the the bagel store it was a place called the metropolitan on union uh Lomer street
0: on Loma and Metro, like you're talking about Bagelswip?
1: Co- I think it's called, is it called the Metropolitan? It's at a bar. Is that what it's called now?
0: The Metropolitan is across the street from the Jillian Boys Club on That's Loma. That's
1: exactly where Milo's used to be. Okay. So Milo's was another old school place where we would have, like, everyone had their parties there. I think when my aunt and uncle got married, she had a bridal shower there. You know, it was just like one of those old school family owned places and there's a couple I can't think of their names right now my mom we were just talking about this recently my mom would know their names but they retired and moved to Florida but that was another old school place you know it was like a creches but then you had all these other places open up like Dumont I think really started the food scene and then they opened up Dumont burger and the dresser which you know it earned a Michelin star and years later I actually worked at Dumont and their sister restaurant dresser I actually worked where the their pastry chef. So I would do the pastries at Dumont and then work the line at night. I was like maybe I was 20, 21 years old. And uh the reason I got the job there was this is a traditional Brooklyn story. How we became friends with the owner of Dumont, Colin. Um, my grandfather had like a poodle. He was like like an old school Irishman, very nasty. He was like a nasty, like your
0: grandfather on um, your mother's side.
1: Yeah, my mother's side. Very very nasty old man. Like you'll ring the bell, he'll yell out the window, Who is it? Like what do you that was want? him. What do you want? You know, like that was him. So he was in McCarran Park walking at the time he had a poodle. His name was Pierre, right? And he used to like walk around. And my grandfather gave no shits. You know, that's how he was. Gave no shits, didn't have a driver's license, used to walk to work, delivered Budweiser for 35 years, you know, Union Beer. Uh so my grandfather was retired. He you know, he was one of those guys who let's just say he enjoyed the beverages. Sure. You know? So he was in McCarran Park walking Pierre. And uh, you know, he had a tall boy, a Budweiser, drinking it, you know. He used to like drink outside the house because he didn't want my grandmother to know. You yeah, know, he didn't want to
0: get yelled at. He's
1: like, I'm walking the dog. I'm walking
0: the dog. <laughs> You I'm know. surprised he wasn't picking up PZQs Q's from the turkey's nest. No, he, that was,
1: that, yes, you're right. He, he, You know, when we were All younger. styrophobe
0: cups. That's right. He Q's. used to
1: take me and my sister to McCarran Park and go to the turkey's nest. Yeah. So he's walking Pierre in McCarran Park. All of a sudden, a cop stops him and gives him a ticket for drinking in the public. So now he's Should've cursing. Should have had
0: it in a styrofoam cup.
1: He was, you know, my grandfather's cursing, you know. He liked you to know how he felt yeah, about yeah, life. Yeah, of course. So Cullen, the guy who owns Dumont, was like, sorry, I have to ask you. One, who are you? talking to and two what are you so angry about you know right so he tells them and becomes friends with the owner of dumont and then my he hired my grandfather he would like clean up like before they would open like he would clean the bar this that the other Uh thing you know that's what my grandfather would do some needed something to do he's
0: retired he's like i gotta get out of the house and do something
1: exactly you know he needed somewhere else to drink you know what i'm saying So, you know, he became really good friends with the owner. And then even years after my uh, grandfather passed away, you know, we would still see the owner, Colin, and, uh, you know, Colin knew I went to culinary school and cooked, and I got offered a job to work at Dumont. And remember, we would do like 300 people for like dinner and brunch, you know, people would wait an hour, an hour and a half. And that was like, I knew, even before I worked there, when they first opened, I knew we reached a turning point of the neighborhood because like it was like people that i've never seen before in my life but i think that's what restaurants do to a community you know it brings people together and it also brings people from different towns over because we i know i do it you do it we'll travel to eat and when you travel to eat you really you know See the town and you see the community and you see places you've never seen before and like I'll go somewhere to eat and be like oh my god this is such a pretty town or a neighborhood or whatever it is and then it brings people in from all different areas I think that's what happens with Dumont is like people like oh my god we're two stops away from Manhattan it took us so quick to get here or maybe they were coming from Queens or whatever and that's how you now we see the change. We see the change in the neighborhood. And Sometimes it does start with one person. It starts with one restaurant that could kind of change a whole neighborhood.
0: Yeah, you know? no, 100, 120%. I actually, um, uh, I was talking to my wife, Shailen, because we, we took this walk the other day that, I mean, I used to take a lot when I was a lot younger. And I was like, babe, do you... You know, like we were just in the West Village and then we, we went to the East Village and I was like, I don't really know how to describe it, but like, um, you know, do you get like this different mood or emotion? And it's not really a mood or emotion. It's something more subtle than that, but it's it's powerful. Like when you go to these different areas and this and that. And I remember growing up and like exploring New York and being in these different places and based on you know um, a lot of different factors, you would get that, and I still like get it today. And it's like, it, it it's such a subtle but powerful thing. And I gotta imagine that people coming into Williamsburg for the first time would feel that you know what i mean and i
1: think that what you're saying is absolutely correct because what you say by a mood and a emotion when you walk through a town is i get it because i think when you go to if you're not from new york and let's say first time in new york you go to madison avenue or times square and you just take a moment where you stand still you feel the energy Mm. you feel the whether it's fast paced, buzzy. You feel the business aspect of it. You know, like you see people in business suits and dresses and you know, they're in high heels and you see, and it's something that could be felt. Is it subtle? Yes. I think it also inspires you. You yeah. know, like you see these people moving fast paced, like New York, they say it's a city that never sleeps and you go there, you know, I would, Manhattan was my backyard. Of course I would see it all the time, but even I was inspired, you know, going from Williamsburg to Manhattan, no matter where I was going, you see this fast pace. it's buzzy, you know, you see people all dressed up in like business suits, maybe have like a business meeting at a restaurant dining right next to you. And it's like, you could feel that it's like, it's like I want that, I want that to be me, maybe it gives you something to inspire to, you know, it's this like very quick, fast pace, and sometimes, I always think it's important to take a moment and like take things in, Sure. you know, because I think we move, go, 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 I know I move so fast sometimes, I don't like, get a chance to like stop what I'm doing and be like, oh my God, what, like whether I'm, I'm in California, be like, oh my God, I'm in California. I made, it. I never dreamt to come here or I'm in, you know, standing in Manhattan. Like I never thought like I would make it here. You know, I'm working for Bobby Flay. I'm working at Del Posto. We never really take these moments and like take a deep breath in. and like, oh my God, this is happening. I know I do this a lot especially more as I get older, like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe I'm meeting this person. I'm having dinner with this person. But I do think when you go to a different neighborhood and I think when you travel, I think it's something that could be felt, you know, it gives you something to look up to, you know, whether I think coming to New York for a lot of people who come from small towns, you could feel New York. New York could be felt. You can look at a photo of New York City. I could feel, I could see traffic. I could see people running late. I could see people running up, you know, doing this, doing that. It is something that could be felt. And I think you're absolutely right. I love getting lost in a city. I love walking around, you know, especially, you know, there's areas of New York I've never seen before. And I lived here my whole life, you know, and I do love that feeling. If I'm in Manhattan, I love just walking around and getting lost and seeing where I end up. You, yeah, you know, I think I, the mean, best, I think it's best not making a plan coming to New York. Get lost in the city, get lost in the Plan football. on getting lost. Yeah, plan, plan on getting on lost. Getting lost, and lost show it, on a plate. and
0: never never follow the lights. Um I mean, it's gotta be only like five years ago. Um I I always heard this legend because like kinda of near where I grew up, there's a neighborhood called Gravesend. Mm-hmm. Or uh, not Gravesend, I'm sorry, Garrison Beach. Um and Garrison Beach is like this old school Irish community where it's like all fifth generation in town, uh, Irish. It's kind of like Southie, Boston, right? Mm-hmm. And then when I came to Manhattan, I would like be like, "Oh, you know, there's still an Irish neighborhood in New York. Uh It's called Garretson Beach." And I would explain it. And every once in a while, like somebody would say, "Oh, but you, have you ever been to an Irish neighborhood in the Bronx?" And I'm like, "Irish neighborhood in the Bronx? What are you talking about?" And one day, like years ago. I'm an adult now. I'm like past, you know, exploring and being a kid. And, you know what I'm saying? Like, kind of get those emotional feelings because I, I, I think it's got like something to do with like being in your youth too. I could be completely wrong about or, that.
1: You know, it,
0: the, it, youths. the youths. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like a time in your life. And like, I, I think when I go back to the West Village and the East Village, like, that gets reminisced, but. I get it in my head I heard about this mythical place in the Bronx that's like this Irish neighborhood and I, I I'm like you know what I'm gonna go over to Morris Park which is a number neighborhood where I know people in the Bronx it's like an old school Italian neighborhood now there's a lot of Albanians there but like there's still a few Italians left and I know like the two local bars there and I know who's there I know I can walk in and get information so I like go over there this must have been like probably five or six years ago and I go, uh, yo, whoa, I go over to Morris Park. I go, it's like an Irish name bar over there. I forget the name of it. But I'm like, yo, where's this fucking Irish name bar I keep on hearing about? You know what I'm saying? Like, I know Mario down the block. I know the cafe over here. I'm Nino. I own Williamsburg Pizza. Look me up on fucking Google. Whatever you got to do to see I'm a legitimate, I'm not a fucking rat, or I'm not like some Momo. Yeah. And they're like, oh, you're talking about Woodside. And I'm like, all right. How do I get there? They're like, all right. Here's a bar. Type this in. They're like, you're going right now. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, it's Friday night, bro. I'm gonna go there right now. It gets a little rowdy over there. I'm like, yeah. yeah, yeah don't worry about it. Turns out there's this, and it's like, you know, Garrett's a Beach is like a peninsula. You know, there's one road in Garretson Avenue, and one road out. Like you, you go down Union, you make a right on Garretson, and now you're in this like kind of peninsula thing and there's all kinds of crazy stories about garrett's beach but this place woodside is almost the same thing except instead of being surrounded by water it's surrounded by a park and that's the reason why there's only one road in i think it's like uh mclaren name uh, brady look that shit up woodside uh bronx and we go over there and for the first time and I've been to Boston a bunch, I've been, you know, Garrison Beach a bunch. Half the people there are speaking with a what do they call a brogue? A brood. Yeah. Brogue. A, yeah. Brogue. Yeah. They're speaking with an Irish accent. And I'm like, how the fuck is this happening? You know what I mean? Like where do these Irish people come from? Turns out there's a um um the immigration center that every person that immigrates to Ireland, I guess, has to go through. It's called Emerald Immigrations. It's located there. The Sandhogs Union, which are the guys that built the tunnels to the like new subways, you know, when the Q just mm-hmm. made the thing from like thirty fourth street, like up at the midtown, the new Q train line. Um a Sandhogs, which is a mostly Irish Union, their their thing is located there. So like Woodside has just had for i don't know who knows how long maybe it's since the 1960s maybe it's since the 1940s like i don't know exactly it's definitely not going back to the 1920s or anything it's like a fairly new and recent thing um it's like every guy that you've ever met like irish immigrant that you see like in midtown that's working out of like mcleaney's bar or whatever like that's like oh how'd you get to new york i was like i moved here they're all coming from this one place so there's enough of them, even if it's only 10% of them, that are like, oh, you know what? I can just work at the bars here. When we went there, I mean, this is years and years after, um, you know, like, smoking became illegal in bars and this and that. Half of the fucking bars, are smoking cigarettes. Like, it's fucking, like, 19 yeah. or 2000, whatever. Um, it's an Irish butcher. There's uh, an Irish restaurant, you know, you go to the bar and there's all these Irish girls from Ireland that are like in their 20s and you're like, holy fucking you're shit. You're like,
1: where am I?
0: Yeah, and I'm like, I'm a few miles away from where I grew up. I'm a few miles away and it's like something you'll never know. It's
1: also like uh, some town- sometimes like I think towns have like a best kept secret. Yeah. Like hide them. You know, I think Williamsburg was, like, a best-kept secret because, like, you know, like, I remember being— Two in,
0: stops away from the thing, old-school right. Italian neighborhood, in, all this I was history. When in
1: high school, like, a big thing on a Friday night was, like, you want to go to Union Square? Like, we would hang out and, like, go to the movies. Like, We Union used to Square. do that when
0: I was a kid, too.
1: And you know, like, that was a big thing. Yeah. You know, like, 14, 15 years old, you're going to Union Square. I so was I'm coming—
0: out. I was coming from, from the—well, the double R originally, but, like, the N train— go up there i mean you were down the block yeah like from a subway perspective you were what i mean if you if you got on the train on Loma, you're like bedford first avenue third avenue union square you're four stops away
1: yeah you know
0: what i mean and it's like a different world right yeah
1: it is and i think you know it was like a fun exciting you know, like Friday night, like we went to the movies or whatever it was. You know, and kid.
0: then you walk through the park, and there's all these That's weird right. people and these you know, weird things you, going on. You
1: hang out in Union Square Park, like it's kind of like going to Disney World. Like you know, you're going to see something exciting. Somebody is doing something in Union Square Park. Like sure. there's always something happening.
0: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. So when um. So when do you get serious about like, I mean, obviously you're serious from the jump. Obviously, you know, being a chef is something you want to do. Um, you know, you go to cooking school at 18 years old. But when do you like really be like, I mean, not this is what I want to do, but like it kind of changes your attitude. I mean, I, I'm saying this from the perspective of like, I look at Michelin star restaurants when I was a kid. Um or when I was younger and you know, they had the French cooktops and they had the copper pots and yeah. they had the technique. And then I look at it now and there's centrifuges and there's uh immersion yeah. circulators. And you know, I mean, every time I look back on it, there's something different. Like when does all that become like really apparent and serious to you? Cause you've kind of dived into all that. Right.
1: Yeah. Cause I also think like when you do any, I think it's any career, I can't just say it's just cooking, you know, I think we start off where we're kind of like sponges, you know, like I didn't like what you think you know about something you actually don't know. Even looking back like five, six, 10, 12 years ago in my career, I was like, I didn't know this then or I'm so much better now. Or, you know, the more you dive into something and the more you learn it from the inside out is when you completely get how things work why this why that who this person is like it's about knowing people knowing the food this that the other thing you know so you know I started when I was 14 and I've always had food related jobs and I went to culinary school and I've always wanted to work at the best I always wanted to work here and do this and you know, like I remember applying to go work at Del Posto. You know, I did a trail there for three days before I even got the job. And I remember going, "Oh my God, they think I'm good enough." And at the time, I think I was like 22, maybe I was 23 years old when I worked at Del Posto. How
0: did you How did you look at that? Like, what? How did you see going into that? What was Del Posto to you when you were 23 years old? What did it mean? What did it represent? Like- you know.
1: I, you know, love the Italian cuisine and I remember Googling the best, I Googled it. I was like, what is the best Italian restaurant in all of New York? And Del Posto ranked number one and, you know, had like a two, three Michelin star. And I was like, I saw that they were hiring. I was like, let me give it a whirl. What's, what's the worst that's possibly going to happen? They're going to say no. And I remember something my dad used to say, he used to say, you know, if you don't put yourself out there, no one's going to ever know you exist and I didn't know what that truly meant to, like, after he passed away. He passed away almost five years ago. Good and uh, um, so I just remember he always used to say that to me. And I'm always like, what's the worst that's going to happen? So I remember I applied there, and I trailed there for three days, and they offered me a job. And, you know, I think it's like you always learn something from everywhere you work, Um no matter what it is, and it's a, such a high standard to work there, and even get a job there. It was just so exciting to me. And, um, you know, even years later, I remember things that I've learned from there, whether you learn about a technique or, you know, whatever. I think everywhere we work, we learned something. You know, and I think we, I started out in this career, and I would just sit on my couch and watch Food No Work because I wasn't old enough to work. And I think once you dive into something and – you're in it, you're working, you're learning. I feel like, you know, I think if you look back when you first started making pizza, remember you're like, I make the best pizza and then like to have you compare that till today. I
0: mean the more sorta you know, Yeah, you're not you're not hundred percent wrong, but definitely, um, you know, one of the things my father always said to me is that uh, I don't care if you like pump gas for a living. I don't care if you like lay drywall for a living. You better be the best gas pupper or the best drywall mm-hmm. layer. And I really took that to heart from a young age. So like, that's what kind of expanded me and kept me going down a path. But I think most people who call themselves a chef or a cook are living in a bubble. And they don't know the things that you knew like from the jump, like they didn't like look up Let me look up the best restaurant. Let me go up to culinary school. Let me try to be the best. Like, I think the vast majority of cooks out there, like the kind of guys you see on, like, Kitchen Nightmares are just that. They think they're the best and have no idea anything on the outside world except for their own view.
1: I think it's so important to, um, you know, be humble no matter what you do. Um, And I love learning new things. I love talking to people like yourself who – you know, or like a, an encyclopedia in a way, you know? So I think, you know, I love learning and I love growing and I love meeting and networking with people. And I think that's so important in this career. And the more you do that and the more you're able to put your walls down and, you know, you create such a circle and where everyone builds each other up and everyone helps each other out. I mean, like you all do well, you all succeed. I never look at somebody and say, you know, get jealous or get this, get that, the other thing. I love to be in a circle where everyone builds each other up and everyone works with each other. And yeah, help somebody out. It's not about like right now, if you said to me, hey, I'll say I need this. I'm always the first one to say, okay, I don't want anything in return. I do it from, you know, my heart because I want to do it or because I like a person and they're like the same. And I think you're in that sense where you do things from the kindness of your heart. Somebody says, hey, Nino, I want you to do this or help me out with this. You do it because you want to. It's not like because you need something in return. Sure. You know, I think uh, you need a lot of this in this career because, you know, there's always especially in such a cutthroat career where there's somebody who's gonna steal your recipe or want to destroy you or bring you down and I feel like there's always those people who are kind of hawking it, if you will, you know, ready to you know, for you to mess up or for you to bring you down. I'm I'm the kind of person like, why do we need to be like that? I am not like that at all.
0: I mean, I think it's advantageous not to be like that because, like, I mean, you know, old old in the neighborhood, one hand washes the other, both hands wash the face. First yeah. of all, there's no such thing as a secret recipe With like, everybody has a supercomputer in your pocket. And I don't think, like, I mean, it was a little bit harder to articulate back then. I mean, hindsight's, like, crazy, but... I think even back then, I mean, if you don't have the atmosphere and you don't have like the thing built and whatever, like what's the best recipe and you don't have the ability to train and teach and execute? Like, what's like the world greatest recipe for anything worth? It's not really worth anything. You know, because like people don't just come to a restaurant for a cheesecake recipe. You know what I mean? they're coming for a lot more than that people are gonna sit down and like spend their money and you know what I mean um like they're looking to get service there's a lot of different things that depending on your concept like where that goes like it's crazy and I mean the way I look at it is just like you know if I'm by myself and I'm just like keeping these things secret it's it, like i might be able to i could tell you something about pizza or something i'm doing new with fermentation that's gonna light a light bulb in your head you could tell me something that you're doing like uh by refining a certain ingredient a new technique that's gonna light a light bulb in my head and yeah. i'm gonna do something and i am gonna be like hey guess what look what i did with this and you're gonna be like holy shit oh. that's fucking awesome and like the same thing vice versa and that like kind of communal brain that communal thinking that like the internet is created social media is created but doing it on a personal level, I mean, that's, that's one of the major things that I think has uh, like grown how much people know and how much people do like in today's day, you know what I mean? Yeah, like sure. think about how much you've learned. Uh, I can think about how much I've learned I mean, in the past four months, my, my thinking has completely changed about whatever I know. And yeah, like
1: But I think that should be with, um, you know, anything. I think, you know, your mind could change, you know, whether in a couple of years, a couple of months, a couple of weeks, I think the more you learn and the more you understand a certain topic or the more you're willing to research and talk to people, I think, you know, your way of thinking could change, whether, you know, about food and who you hang out with and what chefs you talk to you know one of my favorite chefs to um that I've worked with and that I love speaking to and she's has one of the biggest hearts that I've ever met is chef Elizabeth Faulkner who you know had citizen cakes out in uh, San Francisco and she was nominated for the James Beard Award and she's such a well-respected chef which a lot of people think she just does you know, sweets, but she loves, she does a lot of savory and, uh, for the James Beard award, I believe she was nominated for pastry. Um, but I love working with her. I've worked with her as her sous chef at a few food and wine events and I talked to her and she's became such a great friend and mentor and this, the way she thinks about food and approaches it like this un um, it's like untraditional way, if you will. And she opened the way I think about flavors and I remember we were at the, uh, the pebble beach food and wine and she says i think we'll make a miso tiramisu and i'm like okay cool so i was like prepping another dish we, me and her were doing we, i think i we did like leeks vinaigrette and i'm watching her from like my side eye and i noticed she doesn't have any recipes and she makes these beautiful lady fingers like she's like put flour and whatever else she's making and they come out of the oven and they're the most beautiful lady fingers you've ever seen in your life like she made lady fingers like with no recipe. And I was like, you didn't measure anything. She goes, I've done this like a thousand times. Like she's like, I know. So I go try one of these lady fingers and they just like break beautifully in your mouth and they're delicious and they're flavorful. And you taste a little bit of like, I think she put like orange zest in them and you could taste it. And it's just like perfect. You know, then you
0: said like miso, like, yeah. Like so she made udami these, bomb, right?
1: Yeah. So she first started with these beautiful lady fingers and then she made an Italian meringue and then she made a zabayon with sake and she like folds these two together. And as she's folding these two, I'm helping her mix this. It's in a big bowl because it's a food and wine event. She takes white miso paste and fish sauce mm. and puts it together. So first I'm thinking that's weird, a little crazy, but I'm like, I could see how this is going to work, you know? And I tasted it and like, I literally wanted to take my clothes off, dive in this bowl and hang out there for a couple of hours and like smoke a cigarette, which I don't do, you know, because it was so delicious. Do you ever have <laughs> something so good? You're just like, I can't believe this right now, you know? And it was like, uh, it tasted like salted caramel. So this her idea of taking miso and fish sauce and knowing until it tastes like salted caramel was something so untraditional and the so beautifully like well done. I just remember going, huh,
0: yeah. I mean I mean there's there's almost like a science behind all this, like what did did you seek her out to, you know, kinda hook up with her and so
1: it was actually really random how uh, we became friends is uh, so I did this women's chef conference in Minneapolis and I kind of saw her there, but I didn't like talk to her very much. Right. So then like a few weeks later
0: But you knew who she was.
1: Of course. I grew up watching her TV and I knew all about her. And it's like so hard to like approach somebody like, hey, I'm a big fan. And then I think to myself, that person gets that probably a lot. Like whatever I'm saying, it's not really important. So I remember like a few weeks later, I worked with uh, my friends over at Urbani Truffles, which are the world's leading truffle purveyor. I think they own like 70% of the world's uh, truffles. Their big headquarters is over in Umbria and they're like six generations. Olga Orbani does it now. So I was the... I love her. Yeah, I remember,
0: I remember seeing you on Facebook when you were doing, you were yeah. doing a lot of work with them. I do
1: a lot of you know, I've done a lot of work with Urbani, even now I'm such really good friends with those people and, uh, you know, everybody knows uh, Urbani Truffles and uh, even now if they have a big event going on, my friend Sabrina calls me up like, hey, also want to do this? I'm like, yeah, sure, cool.
0: Yeah, they're amazing. I've, I've, I was doing like a thousand dollar pizza like years ago for something. And, like, uh, I ended up having my camera guy there. Tony Hawk ended up showing up oh, randomly. Like, while we were shooting, like, somebody called me. They were like, Nino, we need you to do a $1,000 pizza. I called up our body. I was like, hey, can I get some truffles? I don't have any money, but, like, I'm getting a phone call. They're like, yo, come down. Get whatever you want. They, like, hooked me up. Like, mm-hmm. And um, I had called, like, a camera guy friend of mine, and he was like, uh what's going on and i'm like listen i'm making a thousand dollar pizza i don't know if i'm gonna ever make a thousand dollar pizza again uh i need you to like come down to my shop like in the next two hours and he's like all right bet and he comes and tony hawk and his two kids end up trying to get into the shop while the door's already locked and my uh the gm at the shop had no idea it was tony hawk he was from like um uh georgia not not the state the country um and he was uh i was like that's is that tony i was like bro roddy let tony hawk in (laughs) like and we locked the door behind tony hawk and there's actually a video like on brooklyn pizza crew because like then my camera guy just filmed tony hawk instead of filming what we were filming with i think it was uh like new york live or one of these different like kind of more local shows mm-hmm. that we were filming this for. Um and if you watch the video you can see in the background that like, you know, he's filming Tony Hawk and like there's another camera crew in the background, which was the camera crew that was supposed to Tony be. Tony Hawk but...
1: most important. Yeah, like, yeah you can't. I make thought so up. I was but you know, yeah. only in New York.
0: Yeah, only, only definitely in... only in New York. Yeah. Um but it's, you know, but I mean, I actually, amazing people like you yeah, would think you like
1: randomly run into people. Like I remember my friend Sabrina, who does marketing from Urbani was like, hey, awesome. We're hosting this event to start up this, that, the other thing. So I walk into Urbani Truffles and who's there? Elizabeth Faulkner, right? Mm. So Sabrina's like, I'll introduce you to Elizabeth, right? So, you know, of course, I'm like, try to act cool, you know? I'm so excited to meet sure. you know Elizabeth, especially being a young female chef. She's such you know set such a great path for people like me, and um, so she's like, uh, "This is uh, Allison Fasano, like you know she works here at Obrani. She helps us out. She's so talented." Elizabeth starts talking to me, and then uh, Elizabeth's like, "Hey, I'm hosting this event here in like two weeks. Do you want to come?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I do." And then Elizabeth goes, "Wait, you cook?" And I go, "Yeah." She goes can you help me cook at this event? And I'm like, yeah, I could help you. Come <laughs> How old are you room. then? No, this is only like a couple of years ago. Okay. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go help Elizabeth Faulkner, right? So I show up and she's like, one of my other friends will help me out in the morning. We did an event for like a hundred people, right? So I show up, Sylvia Barbon's there. So Sylvia has been on uh, Top Chef. She owns Larina over in Brooklyn, straight off the boat Italian. So I walk in, Sylvia's like, hey, Allison. Elizabeth goes, oh, my God, you two know each other. I'm like, yeah, we do. I know, I love Sylvia. So then, like, what became like a trio of, like, you know, we're all hanging out and whatever. So I help Elizabeth at this event, right? A hundred people, me and her. So, you know, I just work how I normally work. And at the end, she goes, I felt like we worked together for a really long time. Like, every time I was about to ask you to do something, you were already doing it. And I remember she goes, you want to come to Pebble Beach with me? And I was just like, yeah, I do. So that's kind of how it happened. We just like sometimes you work with somebody, it meshes and it feels like you've been working with each other, and knowing each other for such a long time. I think that's a beautiful thing with this career. And I was just so excited to get a chance to continue to work with her. Anytime she's like, can you help me with this? I'm like, yeah. You know, so I love doing sure. something new, no matter, you know, what I've done in my career, I just love meeting and networking with people, you know, like Elizabeth, like a Sylvia. And through them, I met so many other amazing people. Like, I remember we went to, you know, have one of those after parties, like all these food and wines have. And like the guys who own Alinea, which is a restaurant out in Chicago, they were like, they were named one of the best restaurants in the world.
0: Well, what do they do to make them the best?
1: I mean, you know, Chef Grant is there. And if you don't know anything about Chef Grant or Alinea, it's a very whimsical dining experience. Like these guys take food and cooking to a whole nother level. Like they have these things. They're called edible balloons. Oh, have you seen it, this? Yeah, like it's kind do of, a lot like of molecular
0: gastronomy. Yes, yeah, a lot of, of
1: molecular gastronomy. And it's really just a dining experience. Experience. You know, like they do this thing where, you know, they'll drop this centipede and it looks like a little campfire and you're eating your food. And the guy comes over, moves something from the campfire. I mean, while your pork was cooking in front of you this whole time, but you had no idea. It's a very whimsical dining experience, mm. you know. And I remember I met these owners from Alinea and they're the coolest, nicest guys you've ever met. Very elbows on the table. And the guys were like, we love talking to chefs. We love to you know, me a network with people, we don't know everything. And I remember like taking this moment and going, Oh my God, the guys who own one of the best restaurants in the world are saying they don't know everything. And it kind of says like, how many times have you met people? Like we know everything about this or that, the other thing people, it's, people say it all the time. And I'm one of those, Really humble people. I love meeting and lo- love learning new things. I'll never, no matter how much I know about a topic, I'll never, ever say I know everything. And I think for these guys who own one of the best restaurants in the world to say they don't know everything was such a like, oh my God moment. Like how many how many times have you met people that says, I know everything they know. And you're like, okay. And,
0: and it's literally guys that don't know Anything and don't that um, say that don't, say know. That, don't that, that know don't know everything. Don't know. Um, I mean, it's 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 definitely been like, um, you know, I've always been of the mindset that I could always learn, um. At the same time, you know. I think it's a
1: respect thing. Like, people like, oh, Nino knows pizza. I respect him.
0: Right, right, right. Well, I mean, the right people. I mean, there's still a lot of people out there that whatever. And, like, that can, you know, if you run into enough of that, like, it could give you a big head. And it's one of the biggest struggles where it's, like, very, very recently, like, I got exposed to, like, um some ovens that vicariously I had experience with but I had no idea what they were about and where they were from and, you know and blah, blah blah and it just flipped everything I knew about ovens that I know and like I thought at like this point in my career the had exposure I've had and like yeah. what I've been around like I know every oven that's like made for like cooking pizza and like that all got flipped in my head and it just like puts you back in to this crazy place where you're like holy fucking shit now there's like a whole universe that i gotta learn about and like everything that i knew is like kind of wrong and i wasn't looking at like we don't know i've never heard anybody in the pizza industry say uh um uh you know uh thermo uh, uh thermo loads or like the way that like some of these things are created thermal mass you know what I mean? And we got to look at the number of the thermal mass of this oven. And no one's ever said that. It's just like, well. You, you just know.
1: basically say, yo, what's the temperature of that? Basically. Right.
0: Well, and then you have electric and people describe that a certain way. I'll, I'll even like. All right. So a few years back, um, you know, there's a pretty cutting edge company like um, that was bringing in a lot, of, a lot of used equipment or a lot of new equipment. Forza uh, Forney all right and they make um they bring in the akunto ovens which are uh what anthony mangeri from Muna pizza in uses and they have to bring these things in already built and they're hand brick brick by brick made like incredible ovens if you if you want like to make um you know the oldest school neapolitan traditional pizza and you're not using this oven you're doing like the wrong thing almost you know what i mean because And there's nothing wrong with Pavese's and uh, Marifornia's and these other ovens. But, like, this is, like, a hand-built oven, like, in Italy. It's got, like, all this history and this and that. And they were... Also, they were bringing in the diving arm, the fork mixers, um, and the, the spirals. And kind of the education that was being given out, like, then, when this started to happen, was, like, all right, the diving arm mixer is... Almost, it's replicating the motions of your hands, right? Mm-hmm. And it's being real gentle on the gluten. So it's not fucking with the proteins. And it's like a hand mix. So that's the best thing you can do. All right. The fork mixer is the next best thing. And then the spiral is like the good enough diploma. And then a few years later, you got the whole canoto crew with like Alfonso Seviello and Francesco Bartucci and mm-hmm. um, uh, Colasa Marco and Rafael Abonta and these guys are mixing on spiral mixers at high speeds and they're doing it with science like they're doing it like hey listen we have to reach full gluten development with the least amount of friction without raising the temperature the least amount and it just throws everything you think you know on its fucking face because it's like okay temperature affects gluten um spiral mixers have a very low um uh friction rate when compared to planetary mixers so a planetary mixer is like a kitchen Aid. now if you mix it a planetary mixer you're you're you know it's called a planetary mixer because it goes around like a planet right mm-hmm. but you're banging up against the dough or against the walls so you're creating heat and they're looking at it like they like the science is pretty sound that you know heat is affecting gluten development so especially if you use a super high hydration doughs or even you know like even like a 65 percent hydration dough but with like a a flour that doesn't have dough conditioners and chemicals in it to bring it up to high gluten development quicker you have to employ these techniques and then you know your whole world gets thrown on its head and like obviously like you don't go about it by taking people for its word but then you take the word that they're saying you go look into it and you're like holy fucking shit there's all this stuff behind this and then it you know i mean I, i i feel like everything i know today is going to be different than everything I know five years from now. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. the journey is never going to fucking end. And, you know, I mean, that's just what it is. Cause a lot of these things, they're still for the first time being understood in a really, you know, complex and dynamic way. I mean, how old is modernist cuisine? You know what I mean? That really took stuff down in the micro, uh, microscope. And like, you know, obviously there's, there's tried and trued, traditional things, but like, I think a lot of the old school, even like the, the high-end French cooking and the high-end Michelin star shit, it's like, you have to do this because this is how this works. But they weren't telling you exactly why it works. Like the why in it was like, kind of like an idea. It's like, well, we think this is why, you know?
1: But I think there's always people that go against the green and we're like, haha, I want to go against science. And yeah. like, Let me try something new. And I think that's, you know, in our career, We are constantly experimenting, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think uh, we're always like, wait, if we could do this, I wonder if I could do this. And it's like, that's what cooking is. Like, how many times do you experience, you know, experiment with different doughs and flours and waters and temperatures and yeast? And, you know, I'm like, you know, it's with anything you're experimenting and that's what cooking is about. And sometimes your, you know, mistake turns into the greatest thing you'll ever make
0: literally half of the breakthroughs are (laughs) are are based on a mistake um and it's just like you were trying to do something this this and this happened during the day the mistake happened but i think i think both things go together because when you make the mistake you got to understand how to replicate that i mean in 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 bread baking and pizza making, like if you have your hydrations and your temperatures already set, and you make the mistake, you're going to be able to f- figure out what part of the process and what that mistake led to the yeah. great result. So,
1: but um, also I think you have to. That's the thing is, remember, like people always say, you have to be willing to fail. Yeah, you know, you have to be willing to fail try experiment because that's how you learn it's kind of like learning on your own in in a way like right now you could be at home in your kitchen and you're experimenting and you're trying different things it's like if you don't try you'll never know you know if something works or it doesn't work
0: if you i think there's two sides to it i think if you um if you don't like respect the foundations and you just like, you know what, I'm gonna figure this out. I think you're going down a path that like, you're never gonna get completely there. I think if you do respect the foundations, but you come to a thing where like, I know everything and there's nothing else I can learn. And this is the way it has to be done. And if any, anyone that doesn't do it like this is wrong. You know what I mean? I think either of those paths never are going to lead to, like, a greater understanding and, like, a real evolution and a, um, in the cuisine and in what you're trying to do and getting to a certain place of personalizing it. I think you have to have both things. So like, I mean, from your background, I mean, it's it's kind of important. I'm not saying you got to go to, like, some fancy French cooking school, but, like, you probably know the – basic techniques and this and that those are a foundation of what you do you I mean you almost have to learn that like working at del posto and this and that whether you're aware of it or not it's like coming with the territory
1: yeah absolutely you you know I think it's uh you know you learn as you grow and things I know or thought I knew when I was like 20 and you get to 30 and you're like okay you know you actually almost feel your progress you now feel your progress as you grow in this career like, oh, my God, I can't believe I do this or that. The other thing, you know, I can't believe I've done this. So I'm one of those people that I think we reflect back on our career and what we thought we knew or what we do know now or what we could learn five years from now. I think when you're, you're passionate about something, I think you want to, I think you're hungry to learn when you're passionate about something. Like, you you want to know how everything works, why this, why that, the flower the grain, the this, the that, the other thing. And it's like, it's what drives us. It's almost like we become obsessed if you will. And I think that's, you know, what it's a part of a passionate person, you know, somebody that I think back who's obsessed with something is chef Nancy Silvington, who's based out of California. If you ever watch chef's table or if you're only going to watch one episode, watch Nancy Silvington on Netflix, I watched it like 10 times, but she becomes obsessed, you know, like she was making pizza and you, you know, hear these guys tell her story and, People are going weak in their knees talking about Nancy's pizza or her bread. And she had a bakery, it's called La Brea Bakery out in uh, California. And, you know, you would show up to a dinner table and you had La Brea Bakery bread. And people were like, oh my God, you have Nancy's bread. Like, how did you get that? You know, type of thing. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, she would sell out and close. You know, like she would close the doors. People were right around the corner. <clears throat> and the biggest reason she closed the bakery is because there became such a high demand. They said to her, we should get machines to do the bread. And then Nancy was like, no, I want to do it myself. Like right. I want to roll the bread. I want to do this and I want to do that. So she couldn't keep up with the demand. And, you know, they were talking about bringing machines in. She's like, nah, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, or even when she made her pizza recipe, you know, you hear, you know, in her chef's table, people talk about Nancy's pizza recipe. It's so untraditional. There's so many ingredients. Like, in, uh, in Naples, people would like lose their mind if they hear about Nancy's recipe, but she tried it a thousand times, different water. And if she added a pinch of salt and a pinch of this and a pinch of that, and you just practice and you go back to the drawing board, it needs this, needs that, you know, like a sugar component. Let's use a different yeast. Let's use this type of water. Let's use this type of flour. And you became obsessed with the pizza dough. But then you tried this final product that she has that she still serves at, you know, her restaurants today you know, Pizzeria Moza and, you know, her restaurant. And it's like, it brings you to your knees how good it is. Like that's this, you know, you could taste something. You could taste that she was obsessed. You could taste the passion in it. You know, I think that's what it's all about. And I hear her story and hear Nancy talk about, you know, things she enjoys. And you hear other people and Nancy won the James Beard Award. And you hear other people talk about Nancy and how respected, you know, she is. But she just became obsessed because she's a passionate person and that's what she does you know that's all of us and how would you regardless if it's you know cooking or not you know you like that's the kind of person that I love is somebody who becomes obsessed with something and throws everything they got into it to get such an incredible product you know how would you not want to inspire to be like a Nancy you know I think we all are kooky and crazy in that way but I think it comes with the territory. Like we want to be obsessed about something.
0: We gotta. I, I'm. I'm. I'm sure you didn't check it out because you would have brought it out for me. But recently we did the New York Virtual Pizza Festival, and mm. Nancy was one of the people on there. Um, but on that note, we'll be right back. All right. Are we back?
1: Back in the New York groove, right?
0: Back, back yeah. in the New York groove. So, <laughs> so Al, I understand that's a passion of yours that like you like to tell a story in your food and you're really passionate about like what you consider like Nona style cooking, Nona style food. Like what does that mean and what is that about? What are the ingredients about in that? And how are you elevating that? Like explain all that to me. <laughs> Run your mouth. You you good at running your mouth That's like me. Right. I'm gives, here to listen. Gift the
1: gab. Gift the gab. You know what I'm saying.
0: Gift the gab all day. How you doing out there?
1: Uh, yeah, bunch of momos listening. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, you know what? I like to call it Nona style. It's like big, bold, organic, rustic, like food that gives you a hug on the inside. Like I think, you know, I've always enjoyed. Like I think everyone enjoys like grandma's cooking. You know, whether you're eating a big bowl of uh, lasagna or it's an eggplant parm or, you know, whatever your culture, whatever your background is, you know, it's food that you could taste. It's like food that gives you a hug on the inside. You know, like we call it like homey food, like, you know, like, uh, you know, meatloaf is homey when you have to describe meatloaf as like a homey style food It's like food that you ate growing up and, uh, You know, I just love, especially with the Italian cuisine, it's about showcasing each ingredient and allowing each ingredient a chance to be the star of the show. It's not putting, you know, a whole bunch of ingredients in a dish. If you look at most of an Italian uh, recipes, it's about, you know, minimal ingredients, but really the showcasing all of them. You know, whether you're doing a dish with tomatoes or you're doing a dish with asparagus or whatever the season is, is it really about highlighting each ingredient. And, you know, I love big, bold, like layers of flavor food. You know, when you taste something, it's kind of like, oh, I taste this. I taste that. Or, you know, I'm getting hints of this. You know, that's what I love. And I think with the Nona style, you know, do I modernize it? Yes. So, you know, am I doing your traditional grandma lasagna recipe with dried pasta you got on aisle 12 at Key Foods? No, I'm not. I'm making, you know, fresh pasta. Maybe we're making fresh ricotta. Or maybe I'm trying to make you the best lasagna you've ever had in your life. You know, something, you know, I think a lot of times when we eat lasagna, we always describe it as heavy. You know, you ever have, like, you order gnocchis and people say, well, it's a heavy dish. You know, let's lighten that up, you know, because when you make fresh pasta to make lasagna, it's lighter. When you make your own ricotta, it's lighter. And it's taking something that people think they know and love, but I'm going to try to make it the best you've ever had, which using the best ingredients, making fresh pasta, making all these things from scratch to, you, you know, you almost lose that traditional way of thinking of something.
0: So I bet really quick. I got to do two things right here. First of all, I got to fix your mic because and that's my fault um i take partial no.
1: responsibility too yeah, yeah
0: yeah and you fucking shit brady you piece of shit uh, yeah <laughs> just kidding braids we, we love braids
1: F for today
0: um so like can you walk us down the path we were talking about lasagna like how do you elevate um yeah let's do this let's do that And then, like, you can, like, kind of figure it out from that. Um, (laughs) So, um, there's going to be a lot of guys. I'm in the pizza world. There's a lot of guys in the pizza world that don't understand, like, the fine dining world. Like, how do you, like, and... To be fair to grandmas, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something else, and that's really dear to my heart that I've been like kind of looking at for a long time. So, I I have like girl cousins, uh, Vanessa, Lindsay, um, Aaron, um, you know, and they have my Nona's recipes written down, but they were written down in like the 2000s. You know, and kind of how I look at those things is like, well, my grandmother, what she was buying, you know, I mean, she didn't have access to the Internet. Like the only source of information back then, which, you know, for what we're talking about, there was no source was, you know, your rich uncle's encyclopedia and yada, yada, yada. Um, It's not their fault like they had what
1: you use ingredients they can, that you have that you influence. have absolutely
0: all right and they had no concept of measurements um essential not only measurements but like just like that i mean it, when you look at like the history of italian cooking dried pasta and that was a luxury ingredient you know what i mean going back to as long as it was an ingredient um we don't see it like that today and of course like um it's like make fresh pasta but the reality is if you look at the history of it that was the case so um you know you have it from the market you have for the, pos- the fresh pasta makers but then you go decades and decades on and the recipe is changing because you know it's a little bit of ignorance to like you know we have no idea it's just like let's make it easier you know what i mean okay this works i don't want to get into all that i just want to lay that out there because i think it's important to you know let people know that like yo your nana wasn't wrong for using uh barilla pasta after it got switched to um you know, like Teflon dyes in Chicago or whatever it was. Um, and not, not the greatest, you know, quality ingredient. Yeah. Like, and I
1: also think it depends on what you could find locally at your grocery store is a big thing. Because I grew up, we had sea towns and key foods, you know, I mean, there was no and shops or, you know, whole foods in Brooklyn sure you know so you well
0: I still see grandmas today in Williamsburg and they you know you have Napoli Bakery you have Zolo's Fish Market but a lot of grandmothers my grandmother you know growing up was in New Jersey and you know she went to uh, Caldor and I don't even fucking remember what these places were called but like you know, in the pork stores back in the day when she was growing up and when she learned from her grandmother, there was no such thing as like uh, granulated garlic. There was no such thing as garlic salt, blah, blah, blah. These were all new things. And they didn't look at them in the same ways with the same education that we have today. I don't. But like, tell me. And with that being said, how, how would you? I mean, you're a daughter of this. How, how would you elevate this? Because I want, I want, you know, my aunts, I want, you know, everybody that's from Italian community to know from, from a woman that respects tradition, that respects culture. How do you elevate it? Cause there's nothing wrong with that.
1: No, of course there's nothing wrong about, you know, I loved my grandma, like I said, was Jewish. She was Russian Jewish. He learned from, she lived in an apartment over on Davout street. Her neighbor was Italian and taught her how to make lasagna. So my grandma would make lasagna for Christmas. <laughs> I know that sounds like a crazy story, but it's true. But there's, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's the hominess that we love. But I think as the years go on, whether you know, you're know you a chef or not, you think of ways to make something your own. And me as a chef, as a creative person, as somebody who makes pasta and want to, you know, experiment making fresh regatta, that's my way of almost paying homage to the lasagna i've known and love like do we love that yes but let's let me try and make it in my own let me you know get into my chefy head and think of ways to keep it traditional but let's elevate it a little bit you know so i think it's not being able to to fail to experiment, of you know, it's just sometimes I think to myself, what something actually is. Okay, it's pasta later with ricotta, and there's a bolognese, and this, that, the other thing, and it's a dish that really, uh, originates from the region of Lombardy, and it's just like in my chefy head, I'm just kind of breaking down what all these ingredients are, and how can I make them better, and you know, what would be a different type of cheese, and this, that, the other thing, you know, I love Nona style, I love grandma's cooking, but also it's like, let me just recreate this a little bit.
0: Sure, using what you know And I think I've seen in the past Like um, I've seen guys Years and years and years ago I don't remember who it was I don't remember the names But they were winning like awards for Adding curry spice and doing lamb to, like, meatballs. And I don't, I I, 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 like, worked at a spot that, like, they were trying to emulate that and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't think you understand what's going on over here. I think that guy used the ingredients he used and the way that he used it because, you know, that was his take on it. But that doesn't mean that you got to, like, copy that. That doesn't mean that we can't use pork and veal and beef or just beef or just pork and and use our knowledge of manipulating like meats and manipulating ingredients to create like a super flavorful thing in a way that like, you know, our grandmothers weren't classically trained French cooks, you know what I mean? They were simple things, and we just know more now and there's nothing wrong with that on how to manipulate ingredients like, we learn techniques that we can apply to our traditional culture.
1: Absolutely, and, and then, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And but I think that's, you know, how many times do we see things getting recreated? I mean, that's especially in our world, dishes are constantly being recreative. Like we spoke about this, it's like cacho y pepe. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I got> <laughs> you know, it's the, one of the most. At the very, it's a traditional. Old school, easy dish. It really is easy. Anybody can make it. Super easy. I bet you at any given time, we all have all those ingredients in our house at any given time. But, you know, you go to these restaurants like in the last couple of years, I would say, what do we say? A little over five years, five years or so. Yeah, and Bob, every Bob. restaurant's doing cacio e pepe, cacio e pepe. And it's not even just a traditional pasta form, but you had people like Chef Missy Robbins over here in Williamsburg at Lilia doing cacio e pepe fritelles, which are like almost like a Zeppeli, if you will. It's like that's kind of like the mind of a chef, if you will. Okay, cacio e pepe, that's really cool. It's black pepper and, you know, grated cheese, whether you're, you know, parmesan, pecorino or whatever. How can I make that my own? Oh, I must also make it into a Zeppelin. I think that's the sh- mind of a chef that would think that way. Let's take something that is so familiar, it's so hot right now, but I going also make this into my own. You know, I think that's like the mind of a chef and how a chef's minds work. like taking something so traditional, something so familiar, and then kind of running with it
0: was she like uh i wonder Was she i am not familiar uh, familiar with that uh, at all and that's my own ignorance but you could I know and uh, and
1: missy in williamsburg renato rogerio yeah
0: you know renato rogerio
1: yeah. okay that's all i know about him no no keep going
0: well renato rogerio he um he's a young kid in naples and he does like a uh a cacio e pepe does a uh pistachio pesto he does like a uh, peas and you know kind of like bolognese like almost like what you would put in arancini, but everything's with bugatini and then he makes that he makes it real thick that gets put into a pizza tray cooled and then it gets put into like these three inch um Uh, deep by three inch wide molds and then after that and they cool down he dips it in like a batter like almost like a beer batter but he's probably not making a beer he's probably making a simple batter who knows what he's doing he's like consulting around the world right now and then it's like this simple thing like Italy's got like this bad problem with being like, okay, if somebody in Italy didn't invent it, then it's not authentic Italian. All right. And meanwhile, there's, I mean, I know guys from Napoli food porn site that are, you know, it almost looks like a uh, grease trucks from Rutgers University sandwich, but with much better ingredients because the guys are located in Italy. Yeah. You know, where instead of the American cheese, it's burrata but they're throwing french fries and um you know instead of putting which is to me a revolution um instead of putting the cheese on the actual like hero they're they're putting some oil and like caramelizing that cheese by itself on its own while they cook the sausage while they cook the broccoli rabe and then combining that afterwards on a griddle um there's so many things that like can be done. I don't think anybody owns anything. I think like everything can be delicious in its own right. And like have, you know, I mean the people you're around and the people that you're dealing with and looking up to are obviously like they're, they're very passionate. They're very educated. They know what their ingredients are. They know how to work them. Um, When it comes to that, I think that's the most important thing. And I think, you know, If we were to come out with, um, like, you know, in the 1970s, the things that we're seeing today, like, like and present those things, like, it would be like, okay, you're not traditional, but this is fucking incredible, then it becomes traditional.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's how, um, you know, the culinary field works. It's you, it's always evolving. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you, have you looked at a cookbook from, like, the eighties. I have. You remember I the have, photos?
0: Let me show you something. Cause I have it right
1: here. Okay. Because like even the photos so, you look at. I it.
0: found this on the, oh my God. All like right. the photos, Brady, it's a, get in on this. So I found this on the street. You did? I found this on the street. So these are mint condition, bald bon appetite recipes. This is from April, 1990. this is pretty amazing i would have
1: taken this this is from march 1990 this was uh i was a month old
0: yeah and what does that say the best of italy
1: yeah and then just even like the photos you see whether it's a magazine or like you know recipes like the way the photos were taken in these or no way that we would take them now like can we just like Tomato and bell pepper sauce goes with fish. Look at the fish. There's no possible way that today a food stylist would let a chef take this photo.
0: 100%. But I
1: think you could see the, you know, the ever-evolving, you know.
0: And this is Bon Appetit Magazine. Bon
1: Appetit Magazine.
0: Like the top of the top.
1: You know, I think like you could see how food evolves. And just by flipping through, you know, magazines like you know anybody like a food stylist right now one you know this photo's not even in focus but you know a food stylist
0: (laughs) risotto a risotto new thing uh,
1: you know like a food stylist be like we need some color do a bird's eye view taking this photo so i think you could see the ever evolving you know there's a very happy chef
0: what is what is that ravioli right there what the fuck is that that looks disgusting
1: It looks very it looks like they it took them three hours to take this photo because that's how long this ravioli stood in the window for, you know. Wait, can
0: I see what's under that? What is that stamp? Is that please you know what that looks like? Oh, used by June 9th? Okay. Um, Yeah. No, that almost looks like like one of the Cosetta stamps that I have.
1: You know, I think you could see the ever evolving, you know food especially the culinary scene through magazines and photos and recipes you know even from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000 how photos of food were you know perceived you know today we would never put this on a cover of a magazine right you know we would have something that makes your mouth water you know something that you could almost taste through a photo you know maybe it was fresh pasta maybe it was like a cheese pull because that's what we know today is a cheese pull is cool you know, so I think you could see the ever-evolving food career, the food, um, you know, culture through photos, especially like this is Exhibit A right here. This is the perfect example. You know, I look at old school cookbooks like Julia Child or even Wolfgang Puck and you see, you know, how these photos would take. And like Julia Child literally has a piece of like it would be, like salmon and there's like a baked potato right next to it. And back in the day, you know, Julia Child was so re- well-respected. She, you know, paid the way you know, in this career and you see the photos in these books. And at that time, that was the creme of the crop right there. Yeah. You know, now you put it in side by side with another cookbook and you think.
0: Doesn't even, it doesn't even really stand up anymore. But that was anymore. just a
1: sign of but, the times, really.
0: No, it is a sign of the times. So like that kept in mind and that's what I want to make clear for everybody. I want to make clear that for like my aunts. For my uncles, for my my grandmother that, rest in peace, she's passed away. Like, obviously, she can't listen to this. But, like, with that in mind, like, what would you, like, I I mean, at this point in the podcast, only, like, real believers and real motherfuckers are fucking listening. So, like, walk us through, like, yo, Allison Fasano's modern version of a lasagna. What the fuck is it?
1: Uh, First, I'm, you know, fresh making pasta. Sure. You know, you're making fresh regal. I'm making a bolognese. I don't like, you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of grandmothers put, you know, fresh mozzarella or something like that. I like to do a bolognese with the, you know, bechamel. bechamel And, you know, like I love a lot of fresh herbs, especially if you're doing a like three meat bolognese, you know, veal pork uh, and beef, Um, bechamel, like parmesan, multiple layers and if you put it in the oven and the best you have to let it sit and you should eat it then i like to eat it the next day
0: i agree you I know agree. so it all you gotta let it in. like marinate the day
1: yeah right? and then you reheat it that's when it tastes best on a reheat and also you could cut it a lot better too because lasagna gets a little messy but you know just making the pasta making the recall, like just you know hitting everything right in the money and really paying attention to each component of a dish, you know?
0: Yeah. I recently, um, you know, took this recipe off of, uh, the guys from chef steps, uh, Mm -hmm. website where they did a 24 layer lasagna and kind of like molded that to be like more like my grandma's lasagna and this and that, but took the techniques that they laid out and then it's like you leave it for a day. And then they chop it into these kind of rectangles.
1: And they seared it? And they f- it? seared it. That was like and, a Del Posto thing. And
0: then put put out... Um, I mean, they probably partially got it off of that, I'm sure. I mean, those guys are gangsters by its own. But, like, everybody's getting stuff off of everybody. Like, yeah, nothing's, like, really the best, original.
1: The best way to learn and grow, you know? And uh, I always think, like, when... If I'm watching a food cooking show or I'm, you know, at an event or this, that, the other thing, a lot of times it's so much more important than the recipe. I always think that it's about the techniques that somebody's using and the stories that, that they're telling is the most important. You know, that's my favorite part of watching a cooking show or talking to these chefs or You know, whether I'm online and Googling videos of, you know, recipes or whatever I'm looking at, it's about the techniques somebody's using and the stories that they're telling. That's how we connect and that's how we bring people together. And that's kind of like that elbows on the table type of food, which I'm all about.
0: I think also that story is like a never ending story. I mean, like I'm learning from Michael Vittorio for Vittorio's restaurant, his mother. Mm -hmm. you know, who's got 18 chickens in her backyard. And I'm like, okay, I need chickens. I need fresh eggs. I got to like add sustainability to um, what I do. You know what I mean? I want people to be able to eat fresh made eggs. And, you know, obviously like I can't make a place that's a hundred restaurants right now with that, but at least one where maybe we grow all the tomatoes. I mean- maybe we you know harvest and raise the chickens for most of those eggs and we you know find a guy who's like a bug guy and trade them with uh mm-hmm. you know vermicompost in order to get those um eggs to where they have the nutrients where they're like that amber red which only comes from like you know chickens eating insects and blah 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 and you know it doesn't have to happen all by once and if it's not that it doesn't make it not legitimate But continuing to go in that direction, I mean, you know, talking about Mikey Vittoria, though, like you, um, you were working at a restaurant, you told me, I don't know a lot about it, I'd love you to explain it to me, you had a place in Long Island you were the executive chef of, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, actually, when I What was it called? Uh, Harley's it was a steakhouse.
0: Oh, it was. And where was it?
1: Uh, it was in Farmingdale. And, uh, actually when I first, I moved out to Long Island a couple of years ago. And when I first moved out, I was still working in Manhattan. I worked for, you know, worked for Bobby Flay. So I took this, somebody was like, you know, you should, you know, you cook different. You should bring your New York city style of cooking to Long Island. So we took this executive chef job at a steakhouse and we dried aged our own steaks. But I also like to, um, you know, work my culinary muscle and I don't think a lot of people realize that at a steakhouse, you know, I like braised octopus and I would do this, you know, sometimes I would run specials, and I would make my own mozzarella or, you know, I would make fresh pasta in house and used you know, the trimmings from, um, you know, this, after we used to butcher the steaks after they were dried age and I used to make a ragu, like roast a bone to make a ragu and make fresh pasta, you know, doing that whole no waste technique. And, uh, actually was one of the first female chefs on Long Island to ever earn three stars. And I think that restaurant was named three with,
0: stars with in Long it?
1: Island, like Newsday gave us three stars, okay. yeah, which was pretty exciting because it was a very rare three stars and, um, the restaurant was named one of the top five restaurants to try that same year. Also, Tom Colicchio's restaurant, a small batch, was in that category. So it was nice to be in a category with Tom clickio
0: Tom's a legend, yeah. obviously.
1: You know, so I think it's about everywhere I go, trying to be the best I can and, uh, you know, flex my culinary muscles and do what I do best. And, you know, I love working in different places because I love meeting people. And making those connections. And I feel like a lot of times you work at one place and people follow you everywhere you go. People like, where are you working? Where are you cooking? What are you doing? And everybody wants to be a part of something, you know?
0: Right. So what, like, it's, I mean, even when it's something so as simple as, like, an uh, aged steak, which, you know, I mean, once you age it, like, I mean, you got to be a moron not to cook it right. I'm not saying there's not a bunch of morons out there and you there's guys should shape There's a bunch of momos, you know? There is a bunch of momos out there and you guys should shape up. But, I mean, at the same time, I don't think it's as simple as that because each, even the aging process and the sourcing process and... You know, how do we, um, you know, we have a hundred seats. How are we creating uh, fresh rolled out pasta Mm -hmm. and the bechamel and everything? How are we aging all these steaks? You need a specific type of fridge. I mean, I know, um, you know, I got a couple hacks for this. I don't know. You probably already know it, but using a flour fridge for charcuterie and uh, meat. Is actually a hack to buy an actual charcuterie fridge because it sucks the um, air up, mm-hmm. but whatever. But like people don't think of it like that. There's like, oh, it's not that simple. There's all yeah. these things that go into the back end and this and that. Um, as far as that goes, like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, just to explain to people like how difficult it can be. What are some of those things that like, Yeah. you know, you've seen specifically
1: Yeah, I think um, in every restaurant, I don't think most diners or consumers know how much work goes into that final product that's sitting in front of them, you know, whether you know, we're outsourcing a meat, maybe we're getting meat in from the Midwest or maybe we're supporting farmers or maybe our salmons from Canada, or maybe, you know, we're getting these uh, beautiful dandelion leaves from, you know, somewhere in California or where we're outsourcing or how many people are, are actually involved in the dish that's sitting in front of you. You know, I think a lot of people didn't realize how many people were affected to, you know, most recently with COVID-19 when restaurants had to close their doors Because there's such a long line that is affected with the restaurant business that a lot of people don't realize, you know, like when we have to close our doors or when we're forced to, we can't support you know, you start from the beginning the base, you know, we can't support the building. We can't support our workers. You know, we can't support our farmers. We can't support the fishermen. We can't support our purveyors. And then those purveyors can't support, you know, the people that they're involved with such so like a long line. And how many just think, when all these restaurants were closed, how many crops were actually going to waste because we couldn't get them in our doors. You um, know, we couldn't support those people.
0: And pigs and you know, chickens yes, pigs, and all this stuff. Chickens, what, eggs. What, what, what was going on with you and COVID-19? I know everybody's got a COVID-19 story. Can you yeah. tell us
1: yours? Yeah, so when everything shut down, um, I got involved with feeding COVID-19 testing sites. So we were a staff about six or seven and a state actually opened up a building. I actually worked with my friend, Justin, he owns Sentin couch, but there's a butcher shop out in Roslyn. He was like, yo, I got these testing sites. I was like, all right. So it was a team of six or seven of us. And we would do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, uh, I think most people, when I start to go into this right now, won't completely understand it. So I'll try to paint the picture as much as I can. Please. Uh, so we would actually start our day at three o'clock in the morning and uh breakfast i think had to be out the door at like five forty-five, and we would do sometimes multiple sites you know there was testing sites everywhere well you know one that was in aqueduct which was in queens we would do brooklyn we had a place in the bronx so we had these drivers and you know so each meal period there had to be two options so breakfast lunch and dinner and then, you know, with a team of six to seven, and we're doing 4,600 plated meals a week 4,600. Oh, Jesus. With a team of six to seven. And with COVID, they were very strict because everything had to be individually packaged. You know, let's say for instance, you're doing a sandwich, so we have to buy bread in, slice bread open, you know, you're slicing fresh meats, or maybe you're doing a hot sandwich, a cold sandwich, you have a sauce, you know, a cheese, a meat, a this, a that, you have to cut the sandwich in half, you have to wrap it. And this is about, you probably have about after breakfast is over about two hours to get all these lunch meals out, labeled dated, you know, so we did this for, I would say we went on for months, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner every single day. You know, so, and then when restaurants opened up, you know, a friend of mine, this guy I worked with, John, who's an old school guy, who's, you know, cooked for years. He, you know, has a lot of friends who own restaurants. And every day we would get called to help these restaurants because nobody wanted to work. We couldn't find, they couldn't find staff. So I think I've helped about three restaurants during COVID. Plus on top of that, I still kept on doing the COVID site And I did a lot of like uh, private chef dinners for people outside their house because the restaurants were closed. So some days I would start my day at three o'clock in the morning and I would come home from like working at a restaurant and I would lay in bed and be like, oh my God, it's almost midnight and I have to wake up the next day at three o'clock in the morning. I had weeks where I've worked, um, a hundred hours, but I was so happy and blessed to have gotten a chance to keep my apron on and help people out and be able to still do what I love every day. And I've actually gave back a lot. I'm, I sort it as, you know, I'm out working. I'm not on my day off going out to eat, which I usually do. So what if I took this money that I would normally go out to eat with and help people out? Like we saw this one company who laid their employees off and, you know, they would go out and get food for their staff because their staff couldn't get unemployment. So I was like, what if we made meals for these people? So me and him would split like 60 bucks and make meals for these guys. We also uh, helped my friend, Deb Stone, who started a charity called pop earth which is for autism and disabilities. so we helped her feed homes group homes on long island that house like young adults with autism who were on complete lockdown this whole time and we would show up with like a simple thing like chicken parmesan and pasta and you know they would just be so happy to see us i've also helped uh, a restaurant called salted on the harbor in Northport, and i noticed that most of these shops were and restaurants were owned by women. So throughout the month of March, I was just like, let's celebrate women. And we did something called Wonder Women on Main. So throughout the month, we raised money for breast cancer. I think we raised close to three grand for breast cancer. And I hosted a dinner. And I got a you know, a couple of uh these women owned restaurants to do a course. We sold out at a day. We added another date which also sold out and I think we were able to give them back around fifteen hundred or something like that, or twenty five hundred back just for I think it was twenty what was it? Twenty five hundred, I think. Sure. Twenty five hundred dollars back, uh, to kinda of, which helps restaurants out a lot you know especially during COVID but it's uh, something I did in a community and everybody came out in support and I think it was something that you know people could have done and set up on their own and a few weeks ago I actually did another Wonder Women dinner and I was able to give money back to the Restaurant Relief Fund and uh, last week I actually spoke to Congress in regards of uh, you know which ways we could help restaurants out during these times even though you know, you have to call a loss a loss, but uh, I think what restaurants going open to fill capacity, there's still ways we could help them and we need to continue to help and support them as well.
0: What do you, what what did you tell Congress as far as that? Like, I mean, if you were, you know, the president of the United States or in a position of power, like what would you do? Like, what, what would be your solution? Like you're obviously on the inside, you see what people are going through.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot. I think we were up to like level eight of Jumanji as far as restaurants go. Because I think especially in New York City, you are like, okay, restaurants are open. Now they're closed. Open, they're closed. Open, they're closed. And you can't do that because a lot of people don't realize how much it actually costs to start up a restaurant. Right? right now, your restaurant, okay, we're closed. We get it. COVID, not a problem. You know, some restaurants were able to do takeout and delivery, but you have places like 11 Madison Park is not doing takeout and delivery. You know, sure. restaurant Danielle, not doing rest- takeout and delivery. Yes, I think uh, restaurant owners were able to adapt and overcome during this time. And basically Some, anything go. Some, but a lot of
0: bars and restaurants yeah. weren't.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And no- I mean,
0: who wants to order like fine dining for $64 a plate? Because that's what the place was built for and set up for. And it's just not conducive to like a delivery yeah.
1: world. And, um, you know, I think a loss is a loss, but it takes a lot to bring all this food and product in and then you're going to be told a week or two later you got to close your doors again you know and I think restaurant owners were able to maybe donate the food for people in need uh, and give back but um, oh oh, sorry restaurants were able to uh, donate and give back but it takes a lot to reopen a restaurant bring products in your door you know, um, and also especially with the unemployment right now is a big thing, you know, because they're getting a, a sensitive to basically stay home and nobody wants to work and you're competing with these numbers that you can't actually do, you know, like right. these numbers for line cooks or people to work in the back of the house or numbers that we've never seen before. We've never paid before, but we're c- competing with unemployment and willing to pay that because we're so desperate and we need to you know, we need to start opening up full time. We need to make money. We need to do this. So that's what we're competing with right now. So I they were like, do you think after we take away the extra money on unemployment, will people start applying? Absolutely. You know, people also, I think you lose the stamina. You know, we work long hours and I don't think it takes a while to kind of build that up. I could work 20 hours and I'd be like, I worked one hour, you know, right? that's just how I am. And I'm just built how you built. You know, and it takes a while to build up that stamina. So, you know, it's been a very hard time for everybody. It's a very, it's been a very hard time for the restaurant, uh, industry. You know, I remember watching the TV after I was up at three o'clock in the morning, and they're like, order takeout and delivery. I'm like, you know, there's people working to do that for you. You know, right. let's, how about we talk about these people who I feel like they were on the front line, you know, takeout and delivery workers and restaurants that had their doors open You know, it was a lot, you know, I know I was, I felt like a frontline worker, you know, working. I mean, you fucking
0: were 100% (laughs) facts. I mean, my view on the whole thing is, is like, I mean, I think shit's been changing. I think it has been for a long time. You know, I've been an owner for a long time, but I mean, I remember, um, you know, working my fucking ass off when when it was a cash business and when I was getting paid between eight and $10 an hour and I would work, you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. Um, and it would be like, yo, maybe I bring home like a hundred, 150 a day. Meanwhile, guys that were working half the shifts on the front of house, they were making 400. Yeah. Um, and they were—they had no idea what the menu was most of the time. They were aspiring actors or whatever the fuck yeah. it was. Once, it wasn't.
1: <laughs> when somebody tells you on the streets of New York that they're actress, I'm like, "What restaurant do you work at?" Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think, um, and it's hard, but I think there needs—and I've seen this this business evolve a couple, uh, more than a few times. I know uh, Daniel. I'm gonna say his name wrong, Baloo.
1: Daniel Baloo, yes.
0: I remember a few years ago when he tried to do like, you know, all right, we're just going to get rid of tips and add 20% to the menu and split that between the B-O-H and the F-O-H. a lot of
1: people don't realize that. And it didn't really
0: work out that well, did it, right?
1: No, but uh, also uh, David Chang did that as well. But a lot of people bark or hate on... uh, servers you know like people say that's not a real career you know my aunt
0: i uh, don't bark or hate on servers but like I, people I don't know feel like it's a real job well it is a fucking real job but there's different levels of servers just like there's different levels of chefs you know what i mean there's the one that's the, there's an
1: order taker and then there's a server
0: there's a server and that's their job and they take that profession yes. seriously just like we take that our profession yeah. seriously so,
1: um actually well, will talk about my aunt Diane for a second. My Tell aunt. I, done. Aunt Diane. We're going to talk about Aunt Diane. But uh, I worked at the Sagamore Resort, which is up in uh, Lake George for six seasons. And I basically got in there because my aunt Diane worked there. She worked there for like 30 years as a server. And then she still waits tables today. But, um, you know, I learned from her on how to wait tables. And I've always known I wanted to cook, but I found it so important to learn the whole front of the house. And I loved waiting tables. I loved talking to people. And I was always myself at the tables, you know. And um, But I think it's so important to learn both so you have a higher respect. this I knew... When I was in the kitchen, I didn't want the service to be like you can't do my job, and I'm actually like I could actually do your job, and I'm probably better than you, and I think you need to completely understand right. how the whole thing works. You know, I think when a server comes in the back and tells you that a guest hated a dish, they didn't just say I hated the dish. You know, you know, I've dealt with really nasty customers at a table and it's not just going to the back be like they didn't like it. it's like well they screamed at me and they told me that i'm this that the other thing like you know so it's a completely different ball game but you know like i watched my aunt diane and that's a real career she'll make six seven hundred dollars a night sure that's the only job you could possibly take home seven hundred dollars a night i don't think there's many jobs where you do that
0: there isn't. There absolutely and isn't. And people
1: want to say that's not a real job, but I'm like, some people work a week to make 600 700 bucks.
0: 100, 100%. Well, when I was coming up, most uh, BOH guys did. And I don't think the solution is... I think the solution isn't as simple as one thing or another. Um, I think with uh, what Daniel and with David Chang, uh, what those guys tried to do was... You know, the equal thing maybe is it the answer. But maybe if, you know, if there's a situation, I don't know what the number is that makes sense. But maybe it's 20 or maybe it's 30 that goes to the back of house. Like in Italy. They don't paid, do tips. Well, I mean, you're not going to take tips away from America, bro. Americans are going to tip no matter what. Yeah, I go get so. a Dunkin'
1: Donuts. They want a tip. Everywhere you go, you want a tip. You know what's yeah. the one tip? Can we just discuss about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, let's
0: go. Let's go. So one I like thing your passion don't about, understand.
1: about this. <laughs> one thing I don't understand. So there's one place where I go, and it's weird that they ask for a tip. Have you ever gone to like one of those like fancy event spaces or fancy restaurant? There's a bathroom attendant.
0: Yeah, 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 those, yeah, yeah.
1: Those momos want a tip for handing me one paper towel, I bitch. Know, get out I of know. here. I'm not, I'm not leaving a tip. You no,
0: know, I don't. First of all, I, I just
1: washed my hands. I have to reach into my dirty pocket. Yeah, to now give you, me a you doll handed off. me a
0: towel. I was gonna get the towel anyway. Now you're controlling the fucking towels over yeah, here. The towel place. Why are you control my towels? I wish I, I could control my one. own towels. And
1: then they and then they have a tip cup out too in the bathroom, and also like sometimes like.
0: Well, it's usually at fancy restaurants. I, I took my kid, those. yo, listen to me. Yo, this was fucking crazy. I couldn't believe fucking seeing this and experiencing it. I took my kid to the boardwalk in Point Pleasant in New Jersey on March, uh no, on April 2nd of this year. This fucking year, all right? I went into, there was a place that had pizza. I was fucking starving to death, so I, I ate some shitty pizza. And I had to take a piss. So it's like, oh, order the pizza, go take a piss. And there's a fucking guy holding the towels. He didn't have cologne or any of the normal shit that, like, these, like, Momo fucking clubs and restaurants have. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, I need to give you a dollar to get the towel? Like, what are, what, what am I being extorted over here? Like, what the fuck's going I feel on? Like, and
1: also, those per- they just sit there and just hand you a towel. I feel like saying, how much do you get paid an hour?
0: Yeah. No I, I I have no I've no idea. I'm not knocking you if you have this thing but we live in we live in an Everybody age Everybody want the tip. We live in an age of we have dicing fucking you know like the hand dryers. We don't need the towels anymore. You know, if there's a guy with the cologne that sucks too but like if you want to make an argument for it i'm not paying unless i grab the cologne or the deodorant and like what else are they offering also, and like, like the gum, give the gum the tip, i'll right? give you two dollars for the gum if i need you but if you're holding the towels hostage and I don't need the gum. Just, I and just I right don't need them, the fucking cologne. i my
1: shirt right in front of them if they're wow. in that case.
0: You're right. You're well, there's 100% toilet right. Paper it, it, I just it,
1: use myself. I'll go get the toilet paper. Yeah,
0: I'll do the toilet paper too. I don't even need to fucking like uh, dry my hands. Like I'll walk out wet. I'll do the little shaky shake.
1: Yeah, that's you right. You know what I mean? Or we'll I'll show, show them especially shake. now. If we'll be like, okay, we'll just won't wash our hands then. We'll no, show yeah.
0: show them. No, 100%. But, um, yeah, the, you know, all you bathroom attendants out there, like Stop if begging. you're not giving you me work, gum, yeah. it, it charge me $3 for the gum. No problem. I'll throw you a tip. But if you're not fucking that, I don't want to fucking see you. Don't hold my towels hostage. You know, it's not fair. It's not right. It's a dead fucking thing. But for all the fucking chefs out there, you know, I mean, what does it cost to live in New York today? You can live off of $50 an hour? I don't Probably fucking think not. so.
1: I think uh, there was a restaurant in uh, Manhattan. It's 22 to $27 an hour for a line cook.
0: That's, I mean. That's, that's
1: crazy, so, though. So,
0: yeah, it is crazy. But it's. But at the same time, people, th- that's, th- if that's what it takes to live. And, like, I mean, is uh, I might be wrong about this. But the way I'm looking at it, and I'm I'm a capitalist fucking pig. Okay, I'm out there to fucking like, you know, I'm out there to do the right thing, but I'm also out there to fucking make money because if I'm not making money, what the fuck am I busting my ass fucking 80 hours a week or plus for? So, but I think it's not as simple as like, I think there's a situation where do I want a situation where. You know, people can make a living and grow and this and that because that's definitely the world that existed when I was coming up in this thing. And it's more of the world that exists. I mean, if you go back to 1984, pizza makers that were making $14 an hour and Bensoners, and you look at what housing prices cost, like, I mean, you had to be a real fuck up not to be able to fucking buy a house by the time you were like fucking 26 years old. Like, you had to have a fucking major gambling, drug addiction, whatever. And you got, even if you make like a hundred thousand today, you got no shot. Like where we're at right now, where we're sitting, this is considered commercial property. This house sells between a million and 1.6. Let's say it's a million, right? Because it's commercial property, the minimum you can put down is 30%, which means you need $300,000 liquid minimum. And somebody might outbid you in that case. Like, let's say 30% a minimum. Uh, mo- the market could be everybody's coming out with 60%. So if you're making 60000 a year, right? Yeah, and what well, things cost, you got no shot. 30, 30, years. 30 years if you'd never go to a bar, if you never eat at a restaurant, if you never go on Amazon <laughs> and buy a fucking book you want, and blah, 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 yeah, then 30 be, years. Yeah, you'll be living
1: your best life in that house. Yeah. Best yeah, I life. mean... It, it, it'd be like that Alanis Morissette song ironic you, remember? <laughs> <I>
0: <laughs> you mean, know you
1: buy the, perf- the house of your dreams you die the next day you know I Something mean like the way
0: I think about it is I go down the block right and uh ill I'm saying the fucking name wrong but there's a, a really really good amazing bread bakery they had a video on either uh French guy il Marie. Um, it's across the street from the White Castle on Eater over by Myrtle Wyckoff stop and you know The guy was a banker in France. He wanted to be a bread maker Selling fucking loaves of bread for ten dollars twelve dollars, you know a piece baguettes are six bucks, bro You know what i'm saying? Like now If if you come to the fucking like nuanced realization That okay with rising labor costs and blah 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 we have to add streams of revenue And you add a bread program like that to your thing. And you put in the fucking work because that's your job. You know what I mean? The world fucking changes. It's your job. Like, if I'm the entrepreneur, it's my job to add the revenue to whatever. Just like Keith McDowell did with Polino, just like this guy was doing. And you add that to your pizza program in your small print location, right? Then you survive. And, and not only do you survive, you thrive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, the days of, uh, right or wrong, you tell me. The days of uh, the place in New York City that opens from 5 to 10, that's fine dining. Or, or I mean, how often do you see that?
1: Yeah, you're right. Even,
0: even before Corona, like I people evolved.
1: The, I think you also change with the times. And I think if you have like a business, like you're like, we just do this. As the years go on, you're gonna see less and less business, or or not. I could be wrong, but I think you have to change with the times and see what's happening, what's going on, what's this, what's that. You know, whether you're re- remodeling, getting a different oven, you know, maybe bringing in a beverage program because that's what's hot, right. or you know, maybe you're you know inviting for the first time in your life. Maybe we're getting influencers to help us out. Maybe we're doing a social media page. That's the thing, you know, seeing what's out there. And sometimes you almost have to be the smartest one in the room.
0: You always have to be the smart if you're the entrepreneur,
1: you have if to be you're the, the smartest owner, one in the room.
0: you have to be the smartest person in the room. And there's no fucking excuses. Nobody gives a fuck. There it, like anyone out there who thinks like, oh, uh, labor prices are this right now. Um, all the restaurants are gonna go out of business. Okay, let's say all the restaurants go out of business. Anyone who thinks that new ones are going to spring up in their place just as fast as the old one That's goes right. out and create solutions and thrive, I think are fucking lost their fucking minds. Yeah. Like, you're never going to live everybody's in a world anywhere. Always, uh,
1: everybody's always uh, replaceable. I remember somebody once told me, I think we've all heard the saying before, "As the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But, you know, sometimes that wheel needs to be replaced. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. I like that. Well, tell me that whole fucking saying. I want to hear this whole fucking saying.
1: The squeaky wheel gets the oil, but sometimes the wheel needs to be replaced.
0: That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. I like that. I think that we've like, all,
1: like, I'm always like, why does this person get this? Why don't that person always get that? And they're always like, well, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But nobody ever realized that sometimes, you know, you put oil in a wheel, oil in a wheel. Eventually you have to replace it, don't you?
0: Right. And it's kind of like... I, you know what? I never fucking heard that one before. That's pretty amazing. I mean and I you have
1: a person in the room that's, you know, saying we should do this, that, the other thing and everyone's giving them everything, that person I don't, could be replaced.
0: I don't even think like that that um and I don't think that applies to like, you know, the guy in business has to be replaced, but if he's I think it's like in that analogy, if if the person is just like I could just put oil and oil and oil, like he's not the wheel. It's his choice whether to replace the wheel or not, almost.
1: Yeah, but I also think if you're the entrepreneur and you're the one that has to be the smartest one in the room.
0: It's your responsibility to replace the wheel.
1: Yes, it's your responsibility to replace the wheel. But if you're not constantly learning and figuring out how to wa- ways to bring in business and change with the times, I think it's, it'll be you that is the wheel and you could be replaced with the person next to you.
0: 100%. And, and I think I, I see that, so much where I see people that, um, you know, they're, they have a thing. It's worked for five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever the fuck it is. And they think that the world owes them something. And it's like, Hey, you've been fucking sitting on your ass. This is your fault. Yeah. Like it's nobody else's fault. It's your fault. When things change, they change. You. Who gives like okay, you were you were saying like yo, we're seeing insane labor prices, right? When you tell people that, who cares? Is it is it forward looking people? Or is it fucking people that are complaining? Is it people that are looking for solutions of it, or is it? You know, I'm like, I, I'm gonna be I like like I I just said it. I'm a capitalist fucking pig. I want to make money. And being a capitalist, the different way that I look at it than I think some of my colleagues is I'm like, if it is what it is, it doesn't matter how much I bitch. That's not gonna help me. Yeah. That's not gonna help me make more money. I'm gonna only lose money by changing, or by, by not looking at this shit. I have to look for fucking real time, real life solutions. And you were saying how good our people are at figuring out solutions. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest things that nobody looks at, especially when they open a restaurant, is a human resource element. Like, I'm looking at new concepts now where I'm like, you know, I'm not even opening a new concept unless I'm putting 60 to 120,000 gross on the fucking table per week through my. Mm-hmm. Liquor program through my pizza program, through my delivery program, through my um, you know, uh, you know, I'm carving out like a retail bread thing, like the morph into this thing. And the reason I'm looking at it like that is because if I can't hire, if I want to open five locations or 20 locations, if I can't make a 75 to 125,000 hire. That is the fucking engine that I can be competitive. If that guy walks away, I got another guy coming tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know, that it's going to be the engine behind keeping my culture, keeping my recipes, keeping all these things in line. You know, who's going to do that?
1: Exactly. You know,
0: you, you almost got to, you got to build it into the, in, into the business.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You
0: know, and I, I don't see many people like looking at, you know, they're like, oh, they, yeah, there's going to be some guys. We're, we're coming up with the next Shake Shack. We're coming up with the next Chipotle. I'm like, yeah, there's going to be li- guys lined up for work. Bro, this new generation.
1: Nobody going to work.
0: They don't want to fucking work. But, like, I almost fucking can't blame them. If you got no shot at owning a house, if you got no shot at raising a family with the money they're getting paid, you know, what's the motivation? We come from, like, a different era. And you know what I mean?
1: It's like we have to work for everything that we want and we work for that respect and we work to almost earn that title.
0: But you're 31 years old. And meanwhile, like the guy, the the immigrants from, you know, Uncle Mike from Fortunato's, bro. He he had a house fucking five years after he walked in. He could have had fucking seven if he wanted. Like, I'm never going to not work because that's the way we were fucking brought up but i or almost w- feel like it's not fair to tell these kids like oh oh you know what I'm saying? Like you're fucking lazy, yada, yada, yada. If you like, no, you're working for nothing. I can't, I, I can imagine I might be but the also, same way.
1: Let's all agree that some of them are just lazy and that's plain out. They are. They are.
0: Uh, we, we can 100% agree day, that some, some of role... them is a result yeah. of like horrible fucking parenting and fucking like yeah. trophy fucking yeah. bullshit some and some blah, 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 have blah, this
1: ability to go out and make money or not. Like the other day I asked this girl to work. She goes, I can't work today. I have a lot of things to do. I go, give me an example. Like what I have to clean my car out. I'm like, Mm. bitch, you either should show up to work for a few hours to make money and you can clean your car literally any other day. Any other day. But this is like their train of thought. Well,
0: let me explain it like this. Maybe this is like a better way to put this. So like, all right, there's a million hustles in 2021 that if you bust your ass and do a, B and C, like you can make real money. Yeah. But but spending fucking 12 hours in a fucking kitchen is not one of those hustles.
1: I'm pretty sure yes, I know.
0: Yeah. It, it's not one of those hustles that's going to buy you a yeah, house. Like I mean, these people
1: don't have any time in their hands but they're doing TikTok <laughs> videos, you know? If
0: they're doing that, they're fucking crazy and they're they're dumb. But there is hustles out there where like I mean, you can I mean, I've seen like some crazy shit like bro, my my buddy Austin, and my buddy who lives upstairs, right? he collects basketballs use scumbag basketballs the the more scumbag they are the better and he has an artist friend of his who buys them for $20 a pop because he does installations for the NBA and gets paid like untold amounts of money you know what I mean like if you're willing to think outside the box and willing to reach out and get on the streets and this and that I mean there's there's infinite opportunities out there so to make real cash
1: traditional ways to make money
0: we don't live a traditional time yeah. you know the, the the world we grew up in and the world now is is. i mean it's changing faster than anybody could keep up and like who would have heard of a thing like that like wait wait, wait, wait wait you're telling me if i go walk down the fucking freight train tracks all the way down to brooklyn college and collect 20 year old basketballs that you give me 20 dollars a pop this kid comes home with 50 basketballs average. That's $1,000 for a day. I mean, it, it's it's not like uh, easy work. You know, you're on freight trains of the sun, but it's also like not anything that anyone I think would call like backbreaking or hard. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: It's harder than sitting in an air conditioning room at a desk, but it's... it's I mean, but also,
1: I think we have we live in a time of social media, and some people make jobs, they have jobs based off of Instagram.
0: A lot of people have jobs based off of Instagram. I mean, think about, um, you know, what is traditional advertising anyway? Like, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a great, like, off world example that I grew up with, but like nobody thinks about. So in the pizza industry, right? You have two industry magazines. You have PMQ and Pizza Quarterly Monthly. And you have Pizza Today magazine. And Pizza Today, it was, uh, they throw on, they're the big boys. They throw on Pizza Expo, the, you know, me and you know, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Now, their entire business model up until very recently was, okay, your grande cheese, your uh, peerless ovens, um, your General Mills, your Caputo Flour, your Stanislaus Tomatoes, like all these brands that only sell to the pizza industry, whether they're another company or tomato company or blah, 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 blah. Now, for those companies that don't sell in the grocery store or don't have products that like you could buy, or your mother could buy, or your sister could buy, only people within the industry could buy it would be non advantageous to invest their money into traditional advertising and marketing. Like, you wouldn't want to put um, a stand sauce tomato that um, Alto Cucina or, or uh, you know, or a peerless oven that isn't available or isn't in, like, no one, your mother, you, no one's going to buy that outside the pizza industry, right? So, like, if you were to put that into, like, uh, men's magazine or, you know, uh, Lifetime or w- w- what's the one I'm thinking, whatever, uh, or New York Times ad, you know, only point zero 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 one percent that have eyeballs on your ad would actually be interested in your ad. So their entire business is built off of the fact that, like, we ship our magazines to pizzeria owners and we have over – You know, whatever it is, like 40,000 pizzerias that are getting our magazine. So your eyes, your ad dollars are spent on eyes that actually matter. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't know what percentage. So now you have Instagram. Now nobody's reading the New York Times, right? It's, I mean, it's going to change and it's going to get like whatever. But like, where are people's eyes? Yeah. You know what I mean? You do it. I do it.
1: Yeah, we all do it.
0: We all do it. So if it's like if I can and and now I have this amazing thing where like I can actually figure out a way I can figure out this vertical or whatever where I can put on an ad set where everyone only pizzeria restaurant operators based on, you know, different things um, that I put like specifically into the ad set only they'll see it right. (laughs) what's the point of marketing it's to put eyes on and should I spend I mean think about an average tv show an average tv show like you know primetime tv show or like all right pawn stars you've seen pawn mm-hmm. stars right let's say pawn stars and uh, American Pickers and all those other shows they have an average viewership and Nielsen rating of like 500,000 viewers How many fucking Instagram people and fucking YouTube people that you know that get millions and millions and millions? So if I'm a company, where's my fucking ad dollars better spent?
1: On social media,
0: one hundred percent. And like, is it worth? If I get, even if I get to give somebody with twenty thousand followers five hundred bucks, where I got to give. I mean, I got to imagine ad costs like for uh, Pawn Stars to put an ad on their thing. It's got to be but in also the millions. On
1: social media, if you have to pay somebody, but it's also a targeted audience that you're going sure. for. You know, like if you have, you know, a food blogger, they just go around and they take photos of pizza and pizzerias. And, you know, they're with this pizza, you know, pizzaiola and this pizzaiola. You, I want that person if you know I'm Nino. I want a, well, that, yeah. you know, that if person to advertise me. Yes, well, that that people that follow that person or pizza, you know, like. That's I mean what that they would do. be
0: advantageous, but like yeah, I mean it's just like I mean there's a different um, you know I'm going old school because I'm old, but like there's obviously a different audience from. Um, Pawn Stars to Adult Swim to, like, a yeah. Matlock rerun.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? So, if you're, like, a Matlock rerun on TV land or whatever, like, really old people watch, like, you know, you should probably be, like, placing ads for, like, uh, I don't know... Um, you know whatever old people need like some kind of weird insurance or like yeah you know if Empire you got like plan or something yeah yeah exactly or a ladies like, home journal yeah 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 mm-hmm. or you want to like refinance it's like i, I yeah. always see those ads where it's like uh uh consolidate your debt or yeah. consolidate your lawsuit and this and that and those but guys also
1: those commercials that you're talking about they're on at a you know like a particular time like you know to target
0: those exact people. yeah like during like my mom
1: watches the young and the restless you see all those old people commercials right Right. yeah exactly
0: and they're doing that on purpose so like i mean if you're a company who sells ovens and you're like oh i'm gonna just go on social media and find all the random people with a hundred thousand followers and pay them based on that you're a dumb marketer (laughs) you know what i mean um I mean, I I don't know. I just think everything out there is a little bit more, more like, non-binary than, like, how, like, it's we're perceived. We're just trying to
1: be with the times, man.
0: That's it. That's, That's it. That's all we
1: got to say about that. You know, we're, me and you are trying to be in with the times, and. Uh,
0: we have to be. We got no fucking choice. But
1: also, you I know, can... what's funny is, I know, I bet you are the same way, too. Like people like, oh, you could buy a book online. I need the real book. I need to feel it. I need to flip the know. But do you see the I fucking know, books I, I
0: have? I got a fucking library out there because yeah, I'm know. like that. I that's how
1: I, that's I am. Personal. I need the real thing. I need the but real like, thing.
0: We can't make a decision. I mean we can, but we have to live by that decision. Yeah. If we make if I make a decision or you make a decision like I'm not gonna be on Instagram, you have to live with the consequences that that comes. And you know what I mean? Maybe you can build up like something organically that's so special that like, you know, it doesn't matter if you have an Instagram because people are going to gravitate to it and this and that. But if it doesn't work out like that, you can't complain.
1: Yeah. We're just trying to be with the times and fit in and do the best we can.
0: We have to be. And if we do like, you're obviously an amazing person. And if people like you do what you do, and you put yourself out there, you you you're never gonna know anything but success. You know what I'm saying? Sooner I, or later. Because it's you know, I mean, you're beautiful, you do beautiful things, you have a beautiful way of thinking, you're a fucking unicorn when it comes to where you're from and the first yada, time yada, I yada. Heard that I was
1: a unicorn.
0: Well, I mean it's true. I mean, I'm a fucking yo, when I came back to the Lower East Side. And like I was like, oh, I'm I'm coming back to Lower East Side. I'm gonna be hanging out with like cousin Joe and all the boys are gonna be around. And I walked into fucking like, like you like, uh, rich hipsters from fucking Ohio and Colorado. And you're like, and who it are was these just momos, like I'm you know? walking in. and I'm like, I I'm a fucking unicorn in this bar. Like find another guy from New York besides me. Everybody's from you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean that's what a unicorn is. It's like this mythical creature and, that it's like and, well, rare. We love uh
1: we love being the unicorn. You know. It's like somebody has to carry on the tradition to be <laughs> like us and, you know, be um, elbows on the table.
0: I'm, I'm very, very happy about what I know and where I'm from and who the fuck I and am. And
1: where we're going.
0: And, and yeah, but I, I also wish I had a couple more guys that had the same life experience around in the same place where I'm from once in a while and maybe yeah, that's selfish of me and well, maybe that's me. naive i got you okay. but you're moving away now <laughs> no but
1: but i'm coming back you know i'm only uh going away to cook and travel and learn something new but i'm gonna bring my uh adventures back with well me. tell me
0: about that what are you what are you gonna do
1: Well, you know, first I was like, let me go to Miami. Just lay on the beach for a bit. Uh, (laughs) You know, I've worked a lot, you know, just like I've been on a vacation in like over 11 years, but I love cooking and traveling and learning something new. So like when I travel a bit in June, I don't have a – I don't know what my plan is to come back or when. You don't when. even know
0: where you're going right now.
1: So right now my plan is Miami's first okay. and then I'm going to head down to Dallas and see wherever picks up. I like to do like a stodge and, you know, trail and learn something new and meet people and network. So that's basically what I'm going to do. But, you know, I'm coming back to New York and figure out where I could go from there and where I fit in or if I should open up a restaurant or whatever I'm doing. You know, I think that's the plan, but I love learning something new and I love diving in and, you know, talking to these people and hearing their stories. You know, whether I'm in Dallas I'm doing, you know, a campfire cookout or whatever I'm doing. So that's why I want to just travel, cook and learn something new and meet people. Uh and you know, I'll come back to you know, of course I'm gonna come back to New York. I still live here, but and I'll yeah. figure out what I'll what I'll do from there, you know?
0: No, but that's amazing. I think that's um I mean, it's super important. It's like, it's kind of brave, you know what I mean? And like, no
1: matter how far you've got, come in your career and what you have accomplished, I think it's still important to like, let me s- still learn something new. You know, it's never too like, I love learning new things and I love talking to people and be like, oh, that's so cool. I've never thought to do that. Or maybe I'm learning a new technique or, you know, that's what I'm all about. And what I, it's a continuous education. That's what this career is. And I'll never say I know everything. And I love, you know, bullshitting with people, as we like to say, and kind of hearing their stories and kind of just always seeing where I fit in in this career, no matter how much I have done so far. It's a little like, well, what else can I do? You know, I love having a full plate. Always hungry, Nino. Always yeah. hungry.
0: No, I hear that. I think one of the, like, the hardest things that – um and one of the most rare things that like we've seen like the people we grow up with one of the biggest things that like I mean think about the kids you went to middle school and high school with and they can't get out of their you know what I'm saying little bubble and their element and I mean by you like taking this thing I mean you've obviously done it before this by like going out there I mean like we've for everybody out there like going out to you you squares get out of your fucking element right, you fucking momos that don't understand this shit But, like, um, I mean, it's so fucking important. You know what I'm saying? You're from here. You do what you do. Um, You're always going to have your fucking roots here. You're always going to have your family. You're always going to have your heart here. But you got to, you know what I'm saying? You got to spread your wings and go out.
1: Right now, I might go away for a couple of weeks and come back and uh, see where I go from there. You know, I've worked a lot during this uh, COVID, and I've, I think I've learned how physically hard I could push myself physically and mentally, I should say. Um, you know, working those hours, sometimes doing three jobs in one day. Um, but I think it's, um, time to just learn something new and meet and get out of this new york bubble for a bit i could be gone for a couple weeks who knows but i'll come back and figure be gone for a couple
0: years you gotta fucking just go you know just like see what's good no i fucking know for a fact you're coming back um yo just to jump off on a different thing like i mean because we haven't touched on this and this is a pizza podcast but i know you from, you know, I think you, I, I don't even remember, but I think you reached out to me. And you were like, yo, I want to come to your place to make pizza. But you were in a pizza for a while. You did Urbani stuff. I've seen you all over online making oh, pizza. You're, it, yeah. you can flip a pie. You're yeah. an accomplished pizza maker. Um, you definitely deserve to be on the women of pizza crew. Yeah. But um, how'd that all start for you? Like, what's kind of your inspiration behind that?
1: Um, you know, you know, being in Italy, you know, we, Learned how to make pizza. We had this wood-fired oven. I just, like I said before, I love the, the very therapeutic, like doughs and flipping in and, you know, learning the science behind it. And when I came back <clears throat> from Italy, I wanted to continue making pizzas. And I worked, you know, I with Carmine. I would show up at like 9 o'clock in the morning. And something I would see Carmine do is toss a pizza. And I'm very, I'm a determined you know lady you know i was sure. like i want to make a flip a pizza so of course i had a few failed attempts but then of course now i could just do it without like a I can't do things like you but i could toss it yeah I'll a walk little, walk on little on. basketball hoop on a little basketball yeah, yeah. Oh. so that's how it kind of began but then i just kind of you know it's like oh let me i think we, you kind of just learn how to walk before you could run, you know, like, okay, I can make this already pre-made dough that, you know, I had a carmine and like, here's the sauce and let me, you know, figure out different ways to use sauce and different types of sauce and different toppings. Uh, I want to make my own dough, you know, like, let me figure out the yeast, dry yeast, you know, fresh yeast and flour. And then I would just get to a point, like when I would work with the rabani, like I could just... You know, like make a basic dough, right? You know, like
0: I think that's where I used to see you on social media a lot is that our Bonnie? Yeah, uh, and then I would just be able
1: to, you know, make my own doughs without even thinking about it. Like, of course, you right now, if you can throw down a basic pizza dough recipe, I think we all have one in our back pockets. You know, it's not the one we maybe always use, but I'm like, okay, here's yeast, here's water, here's flour, and then like, here I go teaching people how to make pizzas. Sure. Or we're hosting an event that I'm making pizza with dough I made, you know, a couple of hours ago or yesterday. So, but also it's just like, I just love the feel of, you know, the pizza and no matter how many times you make it. The feels is still the same. It's kind of like watching Titanic. I still cry every time, you know, like it's like my first time watching it. Like that's how it is. Like, you know, you still have the same feels about something. Pizza, same feels, same yeah. feels every single time, no matter how many times you do it wait you know? till
0: wait till i start teaching different styles you're gonna get like different fucking feels to it it's gonna hey, get listen, crazy
1: it's like being in a relationship you know this one <laughs> that one this one that one you know some relationships you hope you never see the person again or you're like okay i guess i'll try that one more time <laughs> I
0: get, it. I definitely get a different feeling when I make Roman style pizza in Metro than I do, with, like Neapolitan in New York, and like those are different too. Like it's or like
1: even Detroit style yums.
0: I, I yeah, oh the Detroit style, bro. It's like you know that's a the new GM Factory, there's blue steel involved, there's caramelized cheese. You're like, like where you know, when you see from? something
1: so exciting, I need people to hold me up. <laughs> you know, you're like, hold me up, hold me up. You know, like me, I saw Sling Dion and Contra. I was like, hold me up, grandma. <laughs>
0: Oh you know, you see God. some you know
1: when you're so excited you don't know how to control yourself.
0: I do, I Sometimes do. Sometimes
1: I just faint. You know? <laughs> just like, you know, I fall like backward. <laughs> so excited.
0: Yo, you're sick. All yeah. right. I think it's been like three hours. Uh, we gotta yeah, go get some the, drinks.
1: This is the best one night stand I've ever had. What's that? This is the best one night stand I've ever had. What, like the oh Yeah, yeah and then yeah, I get yeah. to go home after this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not uh-huh. gonna add to that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prevent myself. Yo, Allison, Yo, you are the fucking best. I am so thankful you came on. I, am so happy I can't wait I till on. you come back. Yo, when you come, the day me, you know, that you fly back into New York, you are coming back on this
1: thing. Yeah, so we're, we're going you know, you know, to These people who are listening might be, you know, listening. Maybe it'll just be me and you opening up a joint together. Nino's a little roll pizza, and we'll be making lasagna in the corner. We're gonna listen to listen to I'm 100% D down
0: for that. I'm like, I'm we're like, going to be listening
1: to D. Martin in the background. It's like old school shop. We're going to do wood fired. We just set up. Up a plan, everybody's now. Everybody's really excited. We're gonna
0: be talking like when you're gone, like we're gonna be on the chit phone, chen. we're gonna be chit chatting, we're gonna be figuring that That's out. You know, I'm I
1: mean? gonna no figure out
0: whatever the fuck I gotta do to get you back to New York City, and I'm for That's nothing right. really and truly all day long.
1: That's it. We could, uh, you know, I'm for we, we, we got it set up ready man. That's <laughs> it. I got no words.
0: We already got it. We already got it. Yo, Allison, thanks you. The I love Thank you. Out with
1: you. Anytime,
0: yo. Everybody, comment, like, share if you want Allison back. I think she's the best. Let, let us know what you think because I know you think that. And if you don't think that, shut the fuck up.
1: Yeah, a bunch of momos. Shut the lights off. Yo, Hit the
0: lights. 100% facts. <laughs> Yo, we are fucking out of here. We'll see you later. Bye-bye, uh, bye bye, momos.
1: Bye bye. Yo, you're the shit. What's our time?